Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So lovely to have you along this morning. Oh, we've got a great show coming up, but remember you can send me a text 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. I love getting your messages. Today, we've got Rebecca Jones. She's going to be telling us about how these primary health organizations work for your health, and in particular, how the government uses the primary health organizations and the payment systems to tweak and incentivize your health providers to get the treatment, the health treatment that the government wants for you. Uh, Sounds a little scary, right? And also along, someone I never thought I'd be having on my show, is John Minto from the Palestinian Solidarity Network. We're very lucky to have him along because he's going to be telling us his perspective, if you like, uh, from the Palestinian side of things on the conflict in the Middle East, the war in the Middle East. We had Ashley Church on. He was very pro-Israel, like me. And we've got um, John Minto along putting the case uh, for the Palestinians. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be a great show. And remember, send me a text, send me a message. As I said, lovely to have you along. You're on Really Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. My favorite bit. Mailbag. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. I love my guests, and, I, and uh, they enrich me enormously in interviewing them. But I love listeners more. And to have your feedback, um, I'd love to have you all on. And maybe, hopefully, one day we can get you calling in and we can talk. Because at present, I feel it's hard to develop that community. But I do so much appreciate your texts and your emails um, and sharing them. 
Here we go. Hi, Rodney. Thank you so much for all your wonderful interviews. Oh, totally my pleasure. I um, I get more out of it than you can ever imagine, believe me. Oh, the Anna card, Ananda, Ananda card interview, remember, on lead. Attention, Rodney Hyde. Many years ago, a house in the Nelson area was prepared for repainting by contractors who sandblasted the house. Shortly later, the homeowner's family cat was unwell. Oh, my goodness. Then the kids were unwell. The doctor diagnosed lead poisoning. The council moved the family out of the house, and the subsequent cleanup involved saw removal, cost $20,000. That's my recollection of the newspaper article. For myself, I worked part-time at Exide Batteries when I was young. At that time, I never heard of recycling until I saw it firsthand, Exide reclaiming the lead from old batteries because it is a special lead alloy, more valuable than pure lead. Exide was pretty careful about lead, and there were plenty of washing facilities and an excellent choice of hand cleaners and nice temperature hot water. Floor sweeping was done wet. I later became a qualified technician working with lead solder. I had a lead check now and then by my own doctor. No problems. But heavy metals slow down the brain and also give you lethargy. And... MOH of the effects, Ministry of Health under MOH, uh, in my humble opinion of the effects, George. Thank you, George. It's astonishing. I never used to think about lead, to be honest. Uh, and then we have my reflection on Winston and the media. You were right on the money about mass media being bribed, Rodney. The same situation is definitely going on in Canada. And like the UK and the US, especially for the last few years, brought to you by Pfizer is the line in American TV that says it's best, ironically, hang in there from Bob. Thank you, Bob. And the Kathy Jameson interview we did uh, regarding the Barry Young data released, leaked, um, from the Ministry of Health. Crime on crime. One crime is suppression of simple methods to support immune system, lies on safe and effective cover up on injuries and deaths. There are many complicit in cover up of the century. Hey Rodney, just in relation to the mobile units, please note that many staff were included in these numbers. I was in an intellectually disabled residential care facility and we had most of our residents jabbed as well as staff at that same time. I would say elderly care homes would have similar situations. So not all in those numbers unnecessarily sick beforehand. Afterwards, not so lucky. All of my ex-colleagues now have health issues. Love your show. Many thanks. Amanda. Oh, my goodness. Hi, Rodney. If this database from the Waka catastrophe, <laughs> the Waka catastrophe, my goodness, that's good. <laughs> we'll keep that name, the Waka catastrophe is based on 12 million shots. Did we hear 18 million were brought into the country, over 6 million expired and were thrown out? Is this the mother of database? Yeah, I I think um, I've studied this stuff now, only the interviews, and I've listened to Steve Kirsch most carefully, and I can understand what he's done, uh, I think. So what he would have done is he's got a sample. The question is whether it's random. Uh, he says he believes it is. And then you can look at the people who were vaccinated on the date. You know their age. And there's an expectation at what time, how long they should live. And so you can plot over the next two years 
their survival rate and compare it to the difference to the expectation. Uh, I believe that's how it was done, and that is a very significant and easy statistical analysis, uh, albeit you've got to be able to handle that large data set of records. But yes, I think it is a problem. I can see what Steve Kirsch is so confident now. The only key thing is that it's random. And um, they say it is. The expert said in the first minute she'd not looked at the data herself. A waste of time after that comment, as I knew as much as she did. Uh, I don't think you know as much as Kathy. Um, very disappointed and stopped listening after five minutes. Well, I'm sorry. I hope RCR will do better in the future. Regards, Sharon and founding member. Well, I'm sorry, Sharon. But none of us, unless we have some sophisticated software, can look at data with 12 million records. And so we're feeling our way towards this. And at least we're up front about what we know and what we don't know. And I had Kathy on because she's looked at a lot of analysis and a lot of data and keeps across these things and was able to explain for us. And I know not every interview is for everyone. So uh, we just have to accept that. Rodney, it's called plausible deniability, quite fashionable. Can we have the information in a clear way? Steve K has, and maybe we can ask him to send them to us. I have watched the program. would love to see the figures and clear images. Yes, I think that the data of that uh, distribution of expected deaths versus actual deaths for each age cohort would be very powerful. And he, I believe, would have done that. Just listening to talk now, when I worked at the Northland District Health Board before being fired due to mandates, they rolled out an IT system that we could personally log into just before the COVID mandates. They asked us to sign up for the jab and fund to put it all in our details once jabbed, etc. I refused. I thought this was fishy straight away, but it was definitely a monitoring system for those jabbed. Of course, they've definitely got all the data. Why they're not analyzing it and sharing the results with us, or they are analyzing it and not sharing the results with us, why they're not providing the actual data um, is truly disgusting. And nothing would restore faith more than just being open with the data. We're not saying personal records, just like we can look at statistics and we don't know individual records. Just listening to talk now, when I, oh, sorry, I've got the same one running again. The Ministry of Health are running scared. Don't forget that there was a 14-day stand-down period when you were not classified as vaccinated. <laughs> Wasn't that weird? Meaning data on injury or death was not correlated to the shot with that time frame. Hi, Rodney. How's it that statistics can be accurate government statistics one day, but after they've been publicly released, they become misinformation? <laughs> the next is Atkins now claim. I think he's running for cover as he was part of the team saying the vax was so safe and effective. They need to be brought to justice for crimes against humanity, against his illness in this case, regards John. Rodney, in 2020, the Ardern government amended the Privacy Act, allowing our data to go offshore and amendments concerned other matters as well, offshore through Amazon Web Services in Sydney, I presume done through Moby. This was used for booking vaccine data, I believe. It pertains to all types of information. None of that is animate anonymized. Uh, Amazon Web Services globally 
had had numerous data breaches over the years. Therefore, I say people in glass houses ought not to throw stones, Fiona. Very interesting about that holding I, uh, data offshore on these big servers because I remember when I was in Parliament, uh, you're not allowed to hold your tax records offshore because to do so means that you don't come under New Zealand jurisdiction and New Zealand law. And then sheepishly, uh, it turned out that um, these data, these accountants, accountants, databases such as, um, oh, what's it called? You know, the famous one in New Zealand that will come to me, uh, that does all the accounting. Uh, they're held offshore in these big databases and they had to rush an amendment through to allow uh, the Commissioner of Inland Revenue to allow software companies to hold tax records offshore. The quid pro quo was those companies would have to offer up that information if asked hmm. by the commissioner. I don't know how often he asks, probably continuously. Uh, hi, Rodney. How can one network news call the information leaked and misinformation when Barry Young has leaked the government's own data? Great point, Trevor. Rodney, so the Ministry of Health is saying their data is misinformation. They can't have it both ways. Quite. Page three, New Zealand Herald yesterday displayed the most pathetic written reporting of the mother of all releases. Almost laughable, the writer's obvious lack of knowledge about what it contained and what his role was. Shabby is all I can say. Haven't the legacy media shown their colours this last little while? Not just with the mother of all releases, but with this new government. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic interview, Rodney. I've missed most of what has happened, so it would be nice to hear this and be brought up to date. Rodney, I'm still wondering why Barry Young never established whistleblower status through a lawyer, Fiona. That's a good point, Fiona. I understand that he attempted to. I heard that uh, on one of the interviews. I've listened to so many, I can't tell you which, which one. But I imagine he would have no chance because you know how the law doesn't apply to when it really hurts. So I don't think he hang out. be interesting. In the meantime, rather than see if this data is correct, people die unnecessarily because they keep taking the save and effective shots. Regards, Dave, quite. Hi, Rodney. Nor, not only am I playing for Barry Young, I want, to, I want to donate his legal costs. How can I do this? Can anyone help? We need so many more Barrys. He's a true hero, and I'm so grateful to him. Well, that's lovely, Raven. I wonder if it's being taken care of by Steve Kirsch, because I haven't seen anywhere. I'll keep my eyes out for you, Raven. Anywhere that for support for him. We need to better our MPs, telling them that an inquiry into the COVID debate must happen. There are too many people dying from the jab, and why is the Ministry of Health still pushing the jab so vehemently? Rodney, what is done in the darkness is brought out to the light. That is what you're doing. Well, thank you so kindly. Oh, and remember Christine interviewed me, Christine Smith, the homeschool lady. Wow, oh my goodness, Rodney, I've learned more about politics in the last 45 minutes listening to you being interviewed than what I've been taught by living in 64 years. I also have it confirmed in my head that you're not the clown I thought you were when I was listening to you as an MP years ago. Well, it's quite possible I was. I, I used to think to myself, ah, oh, no, I'm the same person I was. And it's just that I'm not being filtered through the media. But truthfully, I'm a different person than when I was in politics. Parliament doesn't improve you. 
politics doesn't improve a person. Getting out of politics does. You're one of the more intelligent, well-spoken people I've come to enjoy over the last several years. Thank you. My estimation of you was raised enormously when you came to the protest in Wellington. My friend Chris and I went every weekend, and we were both very buoyed up when we heard that you were there. Today, your story was really inspiring, and to all the youngsters out there, it showed that not all policies are Richard Craniums. <laughs> Think about that, Richard Craniums. <laughs> On the radio, you can't say what I meant to say. You will always now have my support and thanks for what you are doing now with RCR and VFF. Well done, Mr. Rodney Hyde. Cheers for Mike. Thank you, Mike. And truthfully, I think I changed. I think politics, I was different. I think I got better when I left. And I have to say, the COVID experience changed me very, very deeply. And it certainly made me very humble. Oh, and now we're on to Israel and Hamas. Good morning, Rodney. Europa is a dangerous anti-Semitic Holocaust-denying diatribe. Beware. God bless you, Paul. Thank you, Paul, that someone recommended that I look at that. Uh, there is a degree of irony in that the majority of RCR are swallowing the mainstream media propaganda on the Palestinian-Israel conflict, hook, line, and sinker. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you read the mainstream media and you wonder what you can believe and what you can't, and it's we all have to filter it and we all have to question it. I suggest that your listeners dig into some of the outrageous and disproven claims coming from Israeli sources. There were no 40 beheaded babies. I didn't know that there were 40. Check the official death list. There are perhaps two dead babies. Hmm. I thought there were more than that. See? There we go, right? Two's too, too many. The massacre at the rave has been admitted by Israel to be mainly deaths from overzealous Black Hawk crews shooting anything that moved on the ground. I, I'd love you to send me that admission by Israel. I haven't seen that. The rape, murder, and beheading claims are totally unsupported by any forensic evidence. I thought I'd seen the forensic evidence being presented. This is the same type of unquestioned propaganda that was prevalent during the First World War when British media claimed German soldiers were raping nuns and bayoneting babies. Always keep in mind that the Mossad Mahdud is, by way of deception, thou shalt make war. Well, I guess that's a way always of war. You try and trick your enemy. Um, what is occurring in Gaza is ethnic cleansing that hasn't been seen on the scale since Rwanda, Steve. See, I don't know, Steve. I hear that. But then I say, man, if those Israelis wanted to wipe out Gaza, it would be wiped out. They have the capacity. Hi, Rodney. I listened to your fairly recently podcast regards Israel and the Palestinians. I heard no mention of the legality regards who legally has sovereignty over the land Israel occupies. I have not studied it, but my belief is that when the British passed over responsibility for Palestine in about 1947 or 48 to the United Nations, about 56% of the area was given to the New Jersey state and the rest to the Arabs living in the area. And after the Six-Day War with Egypt, the occupied territories were taken over by Israel, but not legally. So legally, what area that Israel occupies and ministers does it own or have sovereignty over? That was not discussed. Surely the legal aspects should be discussed. Like many, I have over the last three years become sceptical regards all mainstream media 
and governments, including Israel. They certainly showed their totalitarianism and censorship regarding all matters COVID. Keep up the great podcast. I'm a big fan. Regards, Phil. Yes, uh, you are right. But my understanding is Israel has extricated itself from the Gaza Strip and the West Bank by handing over authority. And indeed, I understand nothing would make them happier than from those states to succeed. Ah, but it's fraught, isn't it? And I don't stand on any high horse or look down on anyone that has a different view to me or questions my sources or my reading of, quote, the news, because we have all been misled. And we have watched the misleading occur in front of our very eyes. If they will lie over our health and our mandated medication, they would lie over everything. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you so much for listening. I love my mailbag. Send me more. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. For some reason, I feel as though this interview should come with a warning because <laughs> it's likely to make you angry. <laughs> I know I got Rebecca Jones is our guest. Uh, she emailed us and I read the email. And it's a funny thing. I think if I'd read it four years ago, it wouldn't have troubled me. But it deeply troubled me now after the experience of the COVID. Four years ago, I would have said, oh, wow, well, they know what they're doing. They're experts. Mm, not anymore. So you're probably going to get upset and angry just listening to this in a way our health system is run and incentivized that's the bit that gets me and mm. then how they're treating our kids rebecca jones good morning good morning rodney thanks for having me listeners don't have the benefit of seeing you but it's always wonderful to meet a health professional who just exudes joy happiness and good health <laughs> thank and you you're very a wonderful much. exemplar of your profession you are a naturopath that's right Yep. By training. However, mm. you went in quite deep because you founded a medical center called the Holistic Medical Center in 2003. That's right, yeah. So like you were employing nurses and doctors, not just naturopaths. Yeah, I was the only naturopath, but uh, yeah, employed doctors and nurses. Just we had It was back in the day before PHOs, actually. So... Um, we had something called a Section 88, a little bit of a different setup than we do now, and uh, which gave us the 
ability to have two full-time equivalent doctors. And then we had yeah nurses. And I was the only naturopath. And I would just help the doctors so that they could navigate questions about supplements or, you know, add dietary advice. So, but the doctors were the clinical lead. And I was just like a support person to, you know, help them out. Good for you. And mm-hmm. I remember when that PHO model came in. Um mm-hmm. It was controversial, mm. and it was the Helen Clark administration that brought it in, I believe, and doctors pushed back about it, but then just embraced it because I think as the model was rolled out, they were basically incentivized just to accept it, and um, they sort of shrugged and became almost state employees at that point of that model, as I saw I'd it. agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. And and that loss of independence occurred right then. But you've got an interesting experience because tell us about the PHO model. You got rolled into a PHO. You couldn't avoid it. And then yep. you had a policy. Tell us about the vaccination of kids, what your policy was and how the PHO model worked against you. Okay. So basically we held out as long as we possibly could for joining the PHOs, and then we interviewed, I I met with a a bunch of different ones and chose one. But I said at the time that uh, all of our, there's various sort of KPIs, if you like, you know, there's the mammograms and the cardiovascular checks, there's these various programs, and we're very good, we were very good on those because our practice population were very interested in looking after themselves. But I said our immunisation rate for children would be one of the lowest and are you okay with that? And I said, absolutely no problem, no problem at all. And I said, because I we have a policy, we don't pressure parents, we document what they want to do, and we respect their wishes, and that's all we do. We, we're not going to pressure parents or try to tell them that they have to immunise their kids. You know, these are the scheduled vaccines for up to two years old. Um, and I said, that's totally fine, that's totally fine. And as time went along, it actually changed quite a lot. So they said, this is, you know, your stats are the lowest in the PHO and it's not okay and you have to do more. And I said, well, again, we're not going to pressure them. And uh, I got into, we did a whole, we set up a whole immunisation conversation, consultation with the nurse where they could come and talk about things and, and what have you. And then that evolved. Who's into they, the, the PHO bosses or the client? The PHO, well, the PHO... There's various different PHOs and they have slightly different. This one didn't really have a good complement of doctors, so they weren't really familiar with what it was like actually in general practice. Some PHOs have like a clinical governance where there's a lot of medical uh, experience GP input, whereas this one didn't have that. So, uh, yeah, so I I did this very comprehensive flowchart, which basically every single thing that that I've that a parent would want to do. So, you know, from everything on time to uh, none at all. And then I had consent forms for everything. So some parents would have some and not others. Some would have all of them, but delay. And uh, the statistical, the way the bonuses work is if you meet targets. So the target with these is it's fully immunized by the age of two or zero. There wasn't anything in between. So we were doing a lot more work than other practices because we were doing more consultations. We were doing... Um, more visits, we were doing, there's a lot of work and I had a consent form for literally everything. So we had this flow chart and when the parent came in, this is what we would do. 
And so that wasn't good enough. And so they said they would not accept nurses uh, declining um, immunizations or delaying that they had to, if they decided to do that, then they had to be booked in with the doctor. And the doctor was like, oh, this just seems, you know, a little bit already, I'm pretty busy. This doesn't seem like a good use of my time. So then we had to set up a free doctor's visit for them to discuss that with the doctor and then they could be referred to the nurse. And then they said they wanted to sit in with the doctor's consultation and it was very offensive. And uh, the pressure um, on the staff was very, they were very critical of my staff. And so I had a couple of nurses that would end up in tears. So I had to say, look, you're not allowed to see my staff. You have to speak with me only. You're not allowed to, you know, because I'm not having you coming in and disrupting and upsetting my staff. That's not, not you know, not okay. So, uh, and then this this conversation with the doctor where they told the doctor they were going to be sitting in was, you know, bypassed me as well. So, yeah, so there was a lot of, a can lot I of work. Just, um, a lot of... Can I just query this? Mm. First up, I'm astonished that you were following what I would have thought was standard practice of informed consent. Yeah. I would have thought that when it comes to anything, vaccinations included, that you explain it to parents and then they make a choice and everyone says, yeah, 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 good, right? Right. What you were doing is what you would do for any other medication. Right, exactly. So that's what really struck me about this, that you were considered poor performing and odd and sort of subpar because you were actually meeting the professional obligation of informed consent. Yeah. That that was another part of it where they told the nurses what they were allowed to and not allowed to say to parents. They were only allowed to say what was in the Ministry of Health guidelines around immunisation. So there's obviously risk, risk factors, you know, there's a risk factors for hepatitis, there's risk factors for um, uh, tetanus, you know, the, how do you get tetanus, how do you get hepatitis, what are the risk factors? So uh, those are the types of questions parents asked. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the risk of my child getting hepatitis and how do you get it and things like that. So um, it was and, a bit, yeah. And when you went into this PHO, you had explained to them Mm. about your having a low immunization rate. And of yeah. course, no doubt, your do you call them clients, customers? How do you Our describe patients. Patients? Yeah, patients? Yeah, No doubt your patients are a little self-selected to come to your practice because they're weary of over-medication. They question mm. medication, and that's why they're coming to you because you're offering that service. And so... Mm. It's all a bit understandable that it's not just Rodney Hyde rocking up. It's someone who's into the naturopath outlook, if you like, and questioning allopathic medicine. So I get that. (laughs) When you went into the PHO, they were quite relaxed about your position. Yeah, yeah. They said it's no problem. Was it the same people? Was there a change in management or? No, same people. Now, when the PHO, the the people, I don't don't get too – into it, but the people that were running the PHO and were querying you, you suggested they weren't doctors. No, correct. 
what are they accountants or managers or something uh sort of like public health professionals i think university degreed public health professionals but not nurses or doctors sort you of know like that, right? michael baker yeah. yeah um so they were wanting to up your immunization rate criticizing mm. your nurses to the extent that they would tear up mm. and then wanting to sit in with a doctor so that if if a if a if a parent was going to say oh no i'd rather not take that vaccination for johnny mm. they wanted the nurse then to send that patient to the doctor the doctor say oh god what they've made their decision right Mm. He or she then has to sit with this patient and go through this vaccination thing. Mm. And on top of that, these managers of the PHO wanted to be in the room. Yeah, they what they suggested is another doctor. At that point, that was later down the track, because this had gone on for quite some time, uh, they had employed a doctor and they wanted the doctor sit in the room with our doctor. And, of course, that's... It's offensive to any doctor, obviously, because well, it's, it's offensive to the patient. And offensive to the patient, correct. Um, and you suggested earlier on that you got paid as a PHO only if you fulfilled the entire vaccination schedule on time. Right. Right, so there's a different. So you get a, a monthly payment of the patient based on certain criteria. The amount based was based on certain criteria, and uh, that's a monthly payment. But then they had programs, so they had regional programs, and then they had national programs. So the mammogram program, and you once you met a target, say eighty three percent or nine, I think it was ninety percent for cervical checks. Um, and we were like 93%. So we were always over that. So you get a bonus if you met that target. So we never met the target for for uh, fully immunised by the age of two. So there was a bonus that I, we didn't get. So I'm assuming, I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of the PHO system, but I'm assuming that was a, um, uh, they were missing out on that. And they were financially. saying, you're, yeah, financially speaking. So they, they what they told me is you're bringing the entire PHO down in that area and I said yeah but we're bringing it up in this area you know so we're like everything else our cardiovascular checks our stop smoking program um mammograms we were great you know so it was just this the one P area the, the pho model I yeah. mean the payment system must be extraordinarily complex with all these incentives and bonuses and whatnot and you also get paid per patient right that's on your box is that correct yeah that's correct it's so, not a i don't know if i can say how much it is but it's a no, no, it's a not a lot of money yeah 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 okay yeah so if i'm on a if i'm on a, a pho's books even if i don't go and see them for 10 years they're getting paid for me because i'm on their books yeah there is a period of time so when you if you don't go and see them, okay, it does lapse after three years or something. So you have to fill out another form. And then yeah. if I go and see them, they get mm. an extra payment. No, no. So the model is designed to they get that one payment per month for you. And so the more times you go, they start to lose money. So it's a dis dis you know, sort of <laughs> disincentivized to go. Bizarre. <laughs> what a bizarre thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the other complexity, I don't know if it's particularly relevant, but if you go to a practice that's not your practice, um, you go there as a casual patient, then there's a they get paid, they do get paid a fee for you. It's called fee for service. And then that gets the following month, that fee comes out of the PHO that you're registered with. So if you keep going to another practice, they really lose money. And so they're yeah. like, okay, you need to join that practice because you're costing us money. So administratively, it's a very weighty, very weighty. And then when you when someone joins, you don't get it's not till the next up So you can take like a couple of months, you know, to get the payment for that person once they register, depending on when it and so the bureaucrats that are administering the system are endlessly tweaking the bonuses and the payments and the incentives to yeah. determine behaviour. Yeah, I guess from the point of view of where you visit, yes. Is that what you mean? No, I'm thinking like um, they can say, oh, let's push cervical cancer or we want so we'll set a target of 90 percent and then you get a bonus or let's let's set covid vaccinations and we'll set a target and you'll get why um and the phos are responding to that financial incentive in terms of giving medical advice that's what i find offensive the i see what you're that, saying the idea yeah. that um they're not being uh paid to look after me uh, they're being paid to meet some government goal. I might agree with yes. the goal, I might not, but it sort of That's irks right. me. Right, right. I mean, I, I go in and, you know, one of your parents goes in yeah, and you're saying, you know, about Johnny getting vaccinated and the nurse is sitting there and saying, well, the PHO wants you to get vaccinated because we get another X dollars, so mm -hmm. take the jab. That's not... That's not the relationship I'm thinking I'm having with that nurse or that PHO, if you know what I mean. Right, yeah. I feel as, though, I, feel as though I am the, the PHO has become an instrument of government policy because that's where the money's coming from and is being mm. incentivized a certain way, and I'm sitting there pouring my heart out and I'm expecting – that their nurse and the doctor will use their best clinical judgment, but they're, what's the word, slightly contaminated, I guess, or by this model, which is incentivizing behaviors from the nurse, <coughs> specifically, designed, specifically designed to do that. Yes, it's interesting. It's I think in terms of the clinical because the nurses are not getting incentivized and the and the doctors themselves no, are less than the coma. I, I yeah, understand so. that. But the, their bosses are. Yeah, whoever owns the clinic, and there's definitely a shift away from doctor-owned medical centers, mm. you know, so. Uh, yeah. So I've got all that. And, I mean, to be honest, I guess if I thought about it, I'd realize that was happening. But to hear it in your own words, to me, uh, is quite shocking. And as I said, you know, compounded by the experience of these recent years, you mm. then had this before, was it before school checks Check. come along? Yeah. 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 It's pretty. Tell me about <laughs> I, this. Well, that's what actually triggered this, you know, a whole drama where, you know, I was, they tried to close the clinic down, but I got a call and ironically, the person who ran the immunization program, who obviously didn't like me very much, also ran the before school checks. So 
the before school checks uh, were done on four year old children, and they were there was there was a parental checklist that they would fill out, and then they were done at daycare centres, and then at one point Plunkett were doing them, and then another then they moved into general practice. It turns out I found out much later many GPs refused to do them, but I didn't I didn't know that at the time. So there's two parts. So the first part's very good. It's like a hearing. Uh, you check the gums um, and sight and the immunisation history. And then there's a second part to it. And the second part's are called a S&D or a strength and difficulties questionnaire. And it's a series of questions which are very arbitrary. And they're things like, um, does your four-year-old readily share their cherished toys? You know, I mean, anyone who's had a four-year-old, <laughs> I've had a couple. I've had a couple. Um, do they get on better with adults than children? Do they look out the window too much? Do they daydream too much? Like very yeah, vague. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like, you know, I mean, probably daydreaming is a good thing in children, myself. But anyway, um, so, and what that is, it's a psychiatric uh, instrument and it's used to diagnose mental illness. So. Uh, oh, my, oh, my goodness. Dude. I know. This is my heart's oh, like that. My heart. So, was, when I read that. And. I thought, oh, the before school checks, oh, wonderful, because we're picking up these kids with hearing difficulties, right, mm. that mm. can be addressed before they, you know, it becomes a huge problem. So you say, yeah. oh, of course, before school checks, what a wonderful innovation. And Sounds they're amazing. Doing, they're amazing. doing, slipped into this, the subjective questions, because as a mother or father, does Johnny look out the window too much? You're thinking compared to what? Yeah. Like how much does a kid supposed to look out the window? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is, there, is there a right answer to this? And then as you share his toys, oh, sometimes, but not with that little um maniac down the road that always <laughs> I mean, what on earth? How do you deal with that? Oh god, I, I, know. I wouldn't anyway. kids share their toys. Um it's so they're doing these questions. Carry on. It's yeah. just so it's okay. Chilling. So yeah. So exactly. So so I did my research on this uh, before when the, when the information you know that, that it was going to be moving into general practice, and there was an article written in the Otago, the Otago Daily Times. Really yes, good a, journalist. Yeah, that and, was a great uh, newspaper back in the day. A great oh, newspaper. So this I can't remember the the journalist, but he had brought up the question. So. There was the data that I was given is you were not allowed to tell parents not to do it. You're not allowed to say anything that might make them rethink or consider not doing it. And so the data, uh, once you do the checklist, it gives you um, a diagnosis of mental illness, like either I think it's anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, learning, or other psychiatric. But worse still, it gives you a prediction over the lifetime you know, like 60% likely over the lifetime to develop this disorder um, of those four categories. And I was like, geez, please. And then the data's <laughs> held for the lifetime of the child. This is the parents don't know this. No, and, of course not. And there's no privacy policy governing the data, which is what this journalist had found out. And anyone who's considered to be a health professional with no definition of health professional is allowed access to this, but how it's used, there's no policy on how it can be used. Like who can your insurance company, because yeah, that's a big deal, you know, your insurance company can get it 
And they say, well, we're not going to cover you because you've got a risk of anxiety. You know, I don't know. I'm not saying that happens, but the, the point is there's no privacy policy, which is why this journalist had made a complaint to the ombudsman. And uh, also, I mean, for what for what purpose? What is the what are you helping? What is the outcome you're achieving? What is the you know what what how are you helping a child by doing a you know getting a psychiatric label at four years old that's there for life? I, you know, it's pretty concerning. And of course, the the risk is of course getting children put onto antidepressants or Ritalin or you know these kind of things like uh, and, often- and parents. Obviously, with my three little kids, we mm. have done this before school check. Mm. And we would have completely innocently answered the questions. Yeah. Yeah. We would have had no idea what was being sought from us or, indeed, that this was being recorded against our child. We had no idea that it was a check for predicting a mental illness. If they had said that, we would have refused. Right. Right. Interesting, isn't it? This is the point. That is the point. That is the point, isn't it? Because who would refuse a a sight check? Or I mean, it's just very. That's really, really a good thing. So, and, and I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't believe all the psychiatry and mental illness stuff, um, right. and this idea that we diagnose kids with this, that, and the other thing—it's overdone. Mm. And these horrid people are doing that to parents who are totally unwitting mm. in what that. I mean, it's just extra. I mean, I'm. I'm gobsmacked, Rebecca. Yeah, it's 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 really nice to be able to actually talk about it after all these years because that data's still there, you know, still there. And and, and your PHO got paid for asking those questions. Yeah, there was a well. The, I don't know what the PHO was paid, but from memory, it was a hundred dollars plus GST per child for each before school check. So. Uh, yeah, so I got the call, and when are you sending a nurse? And I said, well, I won't be sending a nurse. This is, uh, it's completely not okay to be doing, you know, diagnosing four-year-old children. You know, the SDS&D is a, <clears throat> is a psychiatric instrument. And I got into, it was actually quite a quite an exchange <laughs> on the phone, and this person said, no, it's not. And I said, you can look in any psychiatric journal. I can send you 50 links, you know, in 20 minutes showing that it's used. It's never been used on children. And it's even controversial in teenagers. It's even controversial in of itself as a as an instrument. But it is an instrument for diagnosis. And I said, and I've actually done. I actually filled out the form myself with made-up answers, and it gave me a prediction. So would you like me to send you a copy of that? Because Oh, my goodness. Just to oh, just um, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to naturopath Rebecca Jones, who ran a, a practice clinic with doctors and nurses called Holistic Medical Centre. And when the government rolled out the PHOs, uh, we learned about how the pressure went on financially to just vaccinate the kids and shut up. 
and not to not to not to do your normal informed consent. And now we're learning that these before school checks for which you know they get a hundred dollars per check, which you know is a good thing for sight and hearing, also had a psychiatric tool, a series of questions that would be asked that would predict mental illness in four-year-olds. And the questions would be along the lines of, oh, does Johnny look out of the window? <laughs> does, <laughs> does he I don't know. Oh, yeah. sounds like he's going to be Adolf Hitler when he grows up. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I think I, know, I showed compassion for other – I mean, four-year-old children are just emerging, aren't they? They're just finding the world and, you know, it's a different... This shit. Oh, no. So you're having yeah. this conversation and they're saying, no, 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 and you're saying, yes, it is, yes, it is, and then I've yeah. filled out the form with made-up answers and got a prediction. I know exactly what I'm talking to. I can send you the links. So this is yeah. going on. Sorry, I just had to yeah. pick up people that are just tuning in. Yes, they carry sure, on. Sure. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I said, well, we won't be, we won't be um, doing that. We're just not going to be. I said you would have to shut me down. To I would not be doing that. There's no way that I don't even know where you know what benefit that would. There's no evidence to support it at all, and and there's no informed consent. You know, and I'm looking at my you know patient rights right here on the wall because yeah. you have to display them. Yeah, and it's respect respect their choices. Obviously, respect for your patient's choices and informed consent. You know, you have the right to know and. I said, and also the documentation tells me what I'm allowed to say. What the documentation you provide us is not what you're providing to the parents. They're very different documents, and that's there's no transparency. So, you know, there's no privacy policy governing it, and the um, potential misuse of the data is just phenomenal. So I won't be doing that. So, but 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 it uh, it rained hellfire down <laughs> after that for about nine months. It was pretty intense. So, yeah. And the hellfire was entirely from your PHO managers? Entirely. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. And what what was their what was their message? What was what happened? So obviously I'd said earlier um I'd prevented any of the people coming into the practice from interacting with the staff because they got so upset, you know, they were very critical and undermining and, and so I said you have to deal with me and then I'm the only person that is going to be the liaison and that's the end of that but unbeknownst to anyone someone from the PHO came in and did a an audit <laughs> of our immunizations and wrote a report to the DHB saying that we had to be shut down and that we were the, the main words were fraudulent and a danger to the community and taking money without delivering any health services uh, and they insisted I suspend my nurse immediately, which, of course, there was no way I was going to do that. And so um, they wrote to the nursing council, the funding uh, office for the DHB. I don't know where else they wrote. But anyway, so they so they, um, they did an audit of our immunisation history, which, honestly, I later found out we were one of the best practices in terms of our processes with the, all of the consent forms and how we documented everything. And we did all these extra, you know, um, visits. They could have free visits as many, as many times as they wanted to discuss, you know, whatever and work out, you know. 
Anyway, uh, I don't know, it took me about 100 hours of going through and auditing and pretty much every single point was wrong. Like every, like this person doesn't have a consent form and I'm like, here's the consent form. This person doesn't have a consent form and this consent form has been done but it hasn't been scanned. So I took photos and that. So there was uh, this, this immunisation was charted and this immunisation was given, which are different, which was not true. That was a correct and so you, the batch they, number wasn't just they, they attempted they wrote a stitch up report without your knowledge. Yeah. Sent yeah. it off to the DHB. Yeah. Highly damaging to you and to your business. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think these people were just believers that you were endangering children's health? Or do you think it was you're a square peg in a round hole, or do you think it was just about money? I well, it's a bit tricky. I think um, it, it became. I just couldn't fit very well into the model. I did very well, to be honest. Uh, we worked with. We took on every apart from the before school check. We obviously did all the programs, um, and I personally believe it became personal. Because it yes. felt personal. That's yeah. it became like a bit of a vendetta. You're just that's it. We're done with you. We're gonna. But, we but it all started really right after the yeah before school check. Right after the before school check conversation was right after that. So, um, there was no. There were a lot of GP clinics who didn't do it. In in the end, um, and certainly people could go to their plunket still and get it done or whatever if they wanted to, but um, it it did become personal but also the thing that's difficult for me is I, I care I cared very deeply for the patients and I felt like it was our job to well respect patients and help them with their health and doing something like this was like not helping anybody as a is a, a consumption of our resources which could be used to help someone you know with you know chronic sleep problems or whatever. You know, um, it's also it's also cheating them to me. You sort of cheating, cheating them. them, cheating yeah. them. You're cheating them. You're saying we're doing this thing for this reason, but underneath it, there really is a deeper a reason. This, you mm -hmm. know, like um, your nurses and doctors mm. would have self-selected in terms of working for you because they agreed with your philosophy and approach, I'm guessing. Mostly. I mean, I, like I said, I was the clinical junior in a sense. Yes. We had a model where we did 30-minute consultations, which was amazing. And so for someone who sees, you know, 30 patients a day, you know, 10-minute consultations, it's a breath of fresh air because you could mm. really establish a relationship with your patients and get to know them and have time to answer the questions. So it it was a, a lot of the doctors that I had worked somewhere else but they worked there so they could learn more about, you know, this person brings in a box of supplements. I have no idea. What do I, you know, should I be taking them? I don't know. So I could help answer those questions. And why would someone take magnesium? And, you know, why would they take vitamin D and these kind of things? Mm -hmm. So it was, they could learn a bit of how to create like adjunct services for their patient. You know, we would have other GPs who said, I don't know what to do with your, 
fatigue or your chronic migraines, just go to the Holistic Medical Centre. I've heard they can help. So we would get wow. referrals from other GPs where they're like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what else I could offer you here, but if you want more, you could try them. We did get some referrals from specialists um, in certain areas and things like that. So, so it was good, you know, because we, we, we had some really outstanding results with chronic type stuff. And your staff, doctors and nurses, would have appreciated you sticking up for them. Yes. Getting between them and the management. Exactly. Taking the pressure. Yeah. I mean, it was important. It's very important, you know, in a GP clinic that you, it's not easy work because you're dealing with sick and unhappy people a lot. So you, to create a group where people work together and are, really enjoy that and feel protected, it's quite an, I felt anyway, I felt was very important mm. um, and make it as pleasant a working environment as possible, you know. So the PHO that you're working for, the primary health organization of which you're a member, and your payments come through, has written a, done an audit without your knowledge and written a report that was a stitch up, mm. demonstrably wrong, and sent it off to the DHB full of libelous and defamatory material. Mm. I, don't, I feel like an everyday journalist when I say, how did that make you feel? <laughs> I was so angry. I was, I mean, really, I was, you know, I had to, I mean, obviously, you know, in a general practice, you you got to stay quite calm. So I locked myself in my office. I was really angry. And I was angry that why didn't you talk to me? Why, you know? And so it was a lot of work to do the audit, but I was super angry that they were so disrespectful to my nurses, really angry. And I was really angry that they, particularly, I think that was the most upsetting part is that how do you, demand that I suspend my nurse under what law under what you based on I was so angry and she's a really good nurse and uh so yeah I was very so I did a, you know because I, this before school check I just wanted to say I'd actually made a decision with the practice I talked to them and said this is what I found out this is what this is I do not want to do this how do you feel They're like we agree it's fine so it's not like I was well, making decisions yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I was super angry. So it took me, I didn't think I even did anything about it that day. I just, like, took a day, you know, went home, came back to work the next day. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do an audit. So that's when I started doing the audit, and I um, immediately emailed the next day, emailed the PHO saying how disappointed I was and that I would be doing an audit to uh, look into what they've said and uh, I sent the same email to, one is an email or a letter, to the DHB and uh, to the nursing council as well. So I immediately sort of contacted those those guys. And uh, then I, when I did the audit, I, I, honestly, I was shocked. I was like, did this person take LSD and then come and do the audit? Because wow. it's wholly wrong. Like, it was so wrong. It was, wow. it, it was so wrong I couldn't even. It was quite something the only point interestingly and again this comes back to the fact that they're not doctors and they've never been in that clinical setting so they can't really understand what it's like mm. to be in general practice and mm. seeing patients and working with the complexities that can you know come up while respecting people's wishes while delivering services while 
all those things. So um, there was actually one patient where there wasn't a consent form, and it was the most complex. If you could, the most there was five children in the room. This person was under maternal mental health. She was very very stressed. Um, uh, she had the one child there, and we're like, "There's no way you're going to get a consent form out of that situation." It was very, you know, the fact she'd come in and she just wanted to do. I'm doing this. You're like, okay, good, you know. Yeah. But, and the nurse did incredible. Like five children in a room with a mum that's, you know, not doing too good is the challenging, you know. Yeah. So of course there was no consent form, but you know, there was the literally the only point in the entire report, which is very long. Uh, that was accurate, but it was accurate without the underlying data, you know. Was your audit accepted by the DHB? Uh, yes, it was, yes, because I sent the information and then, yes, this can, here's a photo of the consent form. Here's a photo of the consent form waiting to be scanned. This is the batch number. They said the batch number of the vaccine's not there. Here it is. It's documented. I mean, uh, you know, so, yes, it was. And then after that, so I said, like, yeah. So mm. you could hardly stay with that PHO after that experience. No. <laughs> Is it easy no. to change PHO? Well, it was interesting. I said, you know, I sent an email saying, here's my audit. And as you can see, I mean, there's it's wholly inaccurate. And this is what I've sent. And, uh, and I support my staff and what have you. And there's obviously a huge breakdown in trust over this, and I'll be moving PHOs. <clears throat> and uh, and they said, well, you're required to give us three months' notice, but under the circumstances, paraphrasing, we don't want you so you can go. So uh, the PHO went to, they then sent the same letter, which had already been, you know, they sent the same letter to that PHO and said, you cannot take this practice on. No. Very dangerous and they're very, actually, no matter the timing is wrong there, it ha hadn't finished the audit hadn't been yet accepted by the DHB, my audit. Okay. So um, anyway, so I sent what I'd done, my report, to that PHO, and then I had – it was months. This is months. I'm talking like from woe to go, like eight or nine months. And uh, the nursing council accepted my audit and my letter of support from my nurse, and um, the DHB accepted it. And then this PHO was then, oh, well, you know, so – uh, so I had to do a, um, I gave them the information and then they, I had to have a, a meeting with the clinical governance committee, which was primarily doctors. And it was, in the end, it worked out great. It was great. It was, they said, well, I don't know why you've been punished for patients that make decisions that you can't control. So it seems a bit pointless. So no problem. But yeah. The new PHO was good? Great. Really good. Yeah. Allowed yeah. you not to do the before checks? I think by that stage, yeah, no, it was no problem. It was no problem. And I was told, I think it was that PHO that told me that other doctors had decided not to do that mm. as well. I mean, yeah. obviously, GPs are busy places, you know. GP clinics are very busy places. So Busy places. Yeah. yeah, it's not a useful thing for a GP. I am flabbergasted at the control exerted over all of this and the, what's the word? It's sort of the skullduggery 
obviously the pho is bad but it's a skullduggery of this big before check and this immunization approach where you feel as though you're sitting there to see the doctor or the nurse and there's these ministry of health posters up explaining your rights and you've got all this and i remember <coughs> when i i got my appendix out just before they put me under they explained to me everything that could go wrong and it was mm. quite a long list and quite a terrifying list mm. and um if i hadn't been all robed up i probably would have backed out because it's so, <laughs> it sounded so horrific but i thought oh well i'm here now but you know what i mean they go i do yeah i do they do i might yeah my son had surgery and there was like three they have like they really follow quite a you know, yeah. and that informed consent was extraordinary. I was like, this is really extraordinary. Yeah. I'm a bit, a bit frightened about my son going to surgery now, but at least yeah. I'm informed, you know. And then yeah. when my mum was in her 90s and would go into hospital on her last trip, and, I mean, it was all this informed consent, and you're thinking, she's 94, you know, she's not too good on all of this. But mm. they did it. So mm. I'm shocked that when it comes to this vaccination, it's just take the jab or else, and 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 this pressure comes on, and then there's financial imperative. Mm. Now you're out of the health sector entirely, which is a great yeah. loss. Oh, thank you. It's a nice thing to say. Yeah, I do yeah. miss it. I do miss it at times, but I have to say, I didn't. I don't know that I would have enjoyed the COVID. No. Well, know, that, I can't that even was, imagine what that, that was, was like in general that practice. Was, that was this on speed, but of course, by then. By the time COVID had rolled around, they the this the the health system had in place all the mechanisms of control. Mm. That also demonstrated, with your example, of what happens if you step out. Mm. This before school check still occurring. I don't know if they're still doing it. I haven't heard that, um, but there was many. I think it's over many thousands of kids, you know, and I don't know where the data, the data is. I remember when my kids were, I remember when my kids were, were, were little, the Plunkett nurse coming, who was very lovely. And we've all got memories of standing in the neck when you're a little toddler, standing on the scales with the Plunkett nurse. And I still got <laughs> my little Plunkett book about telling me to eat brains and liver. Um <laughs> For, ba for baby food, right? As the child in the, oh, wow. in the 19, late 50s and early 60s. And, um, oh, yes, he's doing well, but he needs to eat a bit. Of, you know, you need to give him some brains, lamb's brains and liver. And so I had a wonderful, warm view of Plunkett. But when Plunkett turned up with my for my little kids, very nice lady, we, my wife and I, weren't of a mind to have her back yeah. because the questions were of a intrusive nature. Interesting. You know, yeah. Or I'd have to go away. I think, and she'd turn to my wife and she'd say, "Do you ever feel scared?" Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. And this sort of like a, a, a do you feel safe and all this sort of rubbish, right? Wow. Funny, funny thing was, I asked her about this in a very conversational, polite way. And I said, um, do you go into gang houses? 
And she said very, very carefully, I said, do you ask him his questions? And she said, no. Oh, my but goodness. I, I found it very oh. upsetting that you invite a Plunkett nurse into your home and they're yeah. asking your wife about whether she's being hit. Yeah. I don't know. I just felt a bit, I felt that. Was, yeah, and it was, she was reading it out of a list. Like, mm. no disrespect to her. Mm. But this before school check, it's that same intrusion. Mm. And you don't realize because you're talking to the nurse, and in a sense, it's a bit like them saying, how's your day? You know, oh, fine. And you're passing conversation. And so then they're sitting there saying, oh, does Johnny look out of the window a lot? You sort of, oh, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. you don't realize that you're answering a diagnostic tool for mental illness. Yeah. It's quite shocking, isn't it? You said in your email to me, you don't have to say who or what who they work for, that you took this information to a journalist. Yeah. And what was the journalist's response? Uh, well, took it all down, as I've told you, <clears throat> and then uh, called me later. And were, they, and were they surprised like me that this was such a not thing? Not as outraged as you, like not as outraged as I expected. Like I expected yeah. outrage um, being being a parent, uh, you know, of young children. I was I was expecting outrage because I was outraged and not so much, not so much, you know, that I, as I expected. But later, it gave me a call and said we'll be running the piece, but I can't I can't say we need to um, have a balanced view. And overall, uh, it's a good thing. And so we're not going to be putting in. We're going to. It's gonna, not going to be what you expect. And I can't put in some of the information that you put. So it was a very much, there's been some, what had already been out there really, there's been a, you know, a complaint to the ombudsman about the privacy policy. Um, definitely there wasn't the information in that article about the diagnostic and predictive nature of the uh, of the S&D. And, uh, and that overall seemed like a good thing, but it was a bit of a, like a, a puff piece. You know, it was kind of like a, not done as a, Really, like in a, in a, in a, as you'd expect a journalist, exactly, no. exactly. So, and of course, this is what is happening to the legacy media now, isn't it? That they mm. um, can't do those exposes because 10, 15, 20 years ago, this would have been a scoop, yeah, yeah. So it would have I was been so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I got a like, scoop. how are you not like, yeah, I'll be like, ah. <laughs> yeah, front page. Hold, hold, hold the front page, John. I got a scoop. You can't believe what they're getting these doctors to do, and how they're using the information. And get this: parents have no clue. Mm. That would be a scoop. Yeah. Now it's all um, can't write it, and so we're kept constantly completely in the dark with this whole professional medical service. Yeah. I guess the, the part, there's something, there's something I actually forgot to tell you because I've only just re remembered, but 
when for, for parents who are saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I've had this one, I'm not having any more or I'm not having any and you document that and they're like, I don't want to be on the recall, like I don't want to receive reminders about immunizations, you could take them off the recall list and say, okay, parents declined recall and you would note that had, it was totally normal back then and then I was told you're not allowed. You have to keep sending reminders. And I said, well, if our parents decided when we're respecting that, would that not be not respecting their choice? I don't, you know, and like, you cannot, you absolutely cannot be a violation of your contract. So then what would happen is these overdue, the overdue ones would get sent to um, immunisation outreach. <laughs> I don't know if you remember immunisation outreach, no. but there was a bus that would go to people's houses just it would just turn up at people's houses and say, we're here no. to end like, Yeah. And I, how, how, what? It actually happened to um, someone I know. And she said, I got this, you know, not, not from my clinic, but um, um, she lives out south. And they said, these people just turned up. They just turned up with this bus and said, we're here to immunize your child. <laughs> Holy moly. I said, so, yeah. So they would take those lists of overdues and they would be forwarded. Um, forwarded to the immunization outreach program i don't know if they still have that and it works because to my eternal shame i got i accepted all the vaccinations for my children when they were little and we debated it endlessly and back then i thought look every health expert can't be be wrong (laughs) Robert Kennedy looks like a nutter. And I was a member of Western A. Price, and they were big on not accepting it. And I thought, I think they're wrong on this. But ultimately, what tipped me over was, A, the effort for trying to figure it all out, because you're busy, right, apparently. Mm. And B, I, I said to my wife, every time we go and see the doctor with these kids, they're going to say, are you vaccinated? And I said, they're going to have you marked down as a nut nut job. And it was sort of, I was, went for it really because of the social pressure, which is my eternal shame. I'm I'm embarrassed and I feel as though ultimately I'll have to apologise to my children because I feel as though I let them down. Mm. Because now what I learnt through the COVID experience and then reading Robert Kennedy's book, what we think we're getting when what we got when we were kids is vastly different today. Mm. And even what we were getting as kids is questionable. But mm. you it's this pressure. Mm. The doctors are under this pressure, the PHOs are under this pressure, the nurses are under this pressure, the the the, the people right through the system. And so the whole thing has been primed for that COVID experience, hasn't it? Yeah, I guess you could you could say that. You could say that. I personally never saw any side effects from the scheduled vaccines, mm. but I certainly, um, some of the non-scheduled ones, you know, when they did the um, meningitis vaccine, they did a trial run, which never made it onto the schedule, so I guess it wasn't. But there was, remember those scare campaigns, you'll die yeah. if you don't have the meningitis vaccine, and they ran it through the schools and everything. I saw some pretty bad side effects from that vaccine um which interestingly never made it onto the it never made it onto the schedule the immunization schedule so i don't know if that wasn't just kind of went away 
So <laughs> no, it, and so ah, oh, ah, oh, Rebecca Jones. It's <laughs> been a pleasure speaking yeah. with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you too, Rodney. Well, like I said, I felt this. I had to give a content warning because it is upsetting, mm. and it's sacred nurse and doctor mm. and I got very upset that doctors through the COVID era were being told what they couldn't and couldn't say and the advice mm. that they couldn't couldn't give mm. and then I realized that when I go and see a doctor I'm no longer talking to a doctor as my doctor but as an agent of the government mm. implementing government policy which I may or may not agree with that because I think when I go into the doctor's room or the nurse's room, it's very intimate, very personal, and they're using their training and experience to give me the very best advice. But I discovered in the COVID era, if their very best advice deviated from what the government wanted them to say, they would lose their job. Yeah. And at that point, I had no confidence in my doctors or nurses. And so it's wonderful to meet you. Those brave doctors that have spoken out, mm. even if they were wrong, and we now know they're not, mm. were to be greatly admired. Because we got into this pickle and this predicament because people just go along with it. And that's why it's such a pleasure to have you blow the whistle, but also not to go along with it. Yeah, and thank just you. pick up for your doctors and for your nurses and for your patients. Yeah, thanks. Those are very yeah. courageous doctors, very courageous doctors. Very it's courageous true. doctors. Yeah. And then um and then dear Barry Young, the conspiracy theorist, um, who's release that data and again we still haven't got to the bottom of that but my goodness mm -hmm. the way they came after him and the way they treat people it's not human and what I loved about you Rebecca is um, if I was your patient I'd feel very well cared for and protected oh my goodness it's a delightful thing to say thank you Rodney mm. but no it's amazing because you don't feel that nowadays no I hope you get going back into the health field. I So I do. I hope we get to a stage where you can re-enter because I think you have such a wonderful approach and style. Thank, Thank you. you. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's rallycheck.radio. Pretty astonishing interview. We're so lucky to have Rebecca um, speaking up. And remember, you can send me texts at 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. And boy. What we've just had is some real talk. Frightening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send us a text, 2057. Oh, and you'll want to send a text that, uh, after this interview. And email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. You will recall that we had Ashley Church on talking about uh, the Israel-Gaza conflict. He gave us a good account. He was very pro-Israel. And to explain to everyone where I was, I said I was 100% Israel. 
listeners very politely kicked back, many of them, and said we needed to hear the other side. We've been working very hard to get someone, if you like, who sees it from the Palestinian people's view, and we're very lucky to have John Minto from the Palestinian Solidarity Network. Good morning, John. Yeah, good morning, Rodney. Well, thank you for thank you for coming on, because this this is an important issue, and it's it's seizing us all for more so than say the Ukraine war, which is a place we don't understand. But we all have a passionate view of the Middle East and Israel and 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 and, and Palis- the Palestinian people. As you know, um, I'm probably. 180 degrees from you on everything. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from each other and understand each other better. So I really appreciate you coming on. Mm. I'd like to start by asking you, what is the Palestinian Solidarity Network of which you're the chairperson? Well, it's a, as the name says, it's a network. So it's a network of groups around the country. So for example, um, in the like last weekend, we had I think um, eighteen or twenty different groups that were taking some sort of action, holding vigils or marches or rallies in support of the people of Palestine and uh, calling for Palestinian human rights. Um, so yeah, it's a network uh, that links those those groups together. Um, yeah, and so it's an umbrella, an yeah. umbrella group. Yeah, more of an umbrella group. So each each um, individual group sort of is is it is its own autonomous body, if if you like. Mm. Um, but we have an umbrella that sort of, um, I guess, looks after the network and keeps it keeps us on the on the straight and narrow. So presumably, like in all organisations, but particularly when you're a network with multiple organisations, there's a great diversity of views. Oh, and inevitably there is, yeah. There's a, a diversity of views, but the, the common theme, of course, is that, you know, Palestinian people have lived um, the last 75 years sort of booted off their land and, um, uh, you know, uh, and and for that time, um, you know, it, it's one of those things like that's been a running sore for, for humanity ever, ever since. And until that is resolved, uh, we're not going to move, move further forward. I suspect you have been involved in this cause for a long, long time. I remember going to University of Canterbury in 1975, starting Mm. there, and there was an organisation to promote uh, the cause of the Palestinian people. I Mm -hmm. imagine you have been involved back then and probably before. Yeah, probably about that time, about about the mid-1970s, I would have been, yeah, first got involved, yeah. Do you believe there's been progress? Um, I think there there is progress that's happened probably within the last ten years, uh, last fifteen years. It's it's a it's a been a gradual slow progress, but people in the West are coming to understand exactly what the nature of the conflict is. Because up until then, I mean, when I grew up in the sixties and what have you, I mean, we were, um, I mean, for the last fifty years of, I mean. <laughs> Of, of of my life it's always been uh middle east's always been like like a backdrop a kind of wallpaper in our lives and it's always about conflict and fighting and terror and you know sweat and <laughs> sand and what have you and i think we've all just um most people have just sort of turned off from it and think oh god they're all they're at each other's throats they're always fighting it'll never be sorted 
Um, and that's because we didn't understand what the conflict was was about. But I think there's a in the last 15 years probably a much greater understanding in Western countries about the nature of the of the conflict and therefore much greater support for 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 Palestine. So we're on on that trajectory now, which is really mm. good. I want to get down to Pacifics, but first a a question about philosophy because this is a difficult one and I imagine you struggle with this. How do you separate out the cause from being anti-Semitic? Because that's a term that can almost it's like being called racist. It's mm. a term that can shut down the debate. And so here you are saying, you know, human rights for Palestinian, are oh, you anti-Semitic? Mm. How do you distinguish and ensure that you're not anti-Semitic? I'm not trying to uh, insult yeah, you, but no. it seems to me to be an important point. Oh, it's a very important point. And um, uh, we we make that uh, that distinction absolutely. And I think the people who don't make that distinction are the, the pro-Israel lobby here and and around the world and in the Israeli government because they use this false smears of anti-Semitism as a way of shutting down debate. Mm. One of the things Israel um, or the pro-Israel lobby do is they, they're not interested in what the general public thinks about this issue. They are solely interested in pressuring political leaders, politicians, people who have the ability to make decisions that will that will change policy. So they don't care what um, what you and I think, Rodney. They but they care about what politicians say and about um, what decision makers are thinking. And so they use these false smears of anti-Semitism to shut down debate. They don't want Israel being debated because they know that when it's out there in the public, when it's being debated as it is at the moment, that that they don't have a leg to stand on. That people will 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 side with Palestinians as a kind of a, a gut feeling, um, and and gradually much more than a gut feeling. It's a clear understanding of, of what's actually going on. Do you see a place for Israel? Um, yes, but not as a racist state because Israel is a racist state. It's it's an apartheid state, so that. Um, uh, in the last um, half dozen years, every major human rights organization around the world has identified Israel as an apartheid state. So, for example, Beth Salem, which is the largest and most respected human rights organization in Israel itself, says that Israel is what they describe as a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. That's, that's what they're saying. So that in that, in the whole area of historic Palestine, which Israel now occupies, so it's it's got an occupation army right across the entire area of historic Palestine. Every Palestinian living between the river and the sea is discriminated against by by racist policies by the by the Israeli government, and uh, Israel does not have or the Israeli leadership does not see a future for Palestinians at all in Palestine. Um, they, when you when you when you say the place Palestine, yep. it doesn't at this moment exist. So we've got Israel, we've got the West Bank, we've got mm. the Gaza Strip, we've got the surrounding countries. Mm. If we're thinking about your phrase Palestine, what what does that encompass? Well, it encompasses um, historic Palestine. If you talk to Palestinians, they'll say Palestine has always been there. 
Palestine has always been that land between the river and the sea, and that um, they are happy to live in a country um, which is a secular state. This is, um, I shouldn't say most Palestinians are happy to live in a country which is a secular state where everybody has equal rights covering that entire area. Okay, so, uh, you know, some of the, the first proposals from Palestinians to resolve um, this situation was to propose that, have a single secular state where you have a, where you have a constitution which protects the religious and uh, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, no matter who they are. You simply give everybody equal rights and you... Um, allow people to get on with their lives. And that's the solution that came about in South Africa. And I think it's the it's the only solution which really offers um, justice and peace in, so, in the long term. So you have a state that's from the river to the sea. Yep. You have Jewish people and Palestinian people and yep. uh, others, obviously, because yep. there's others there now, Arab people. Yep. And they live there under the rule of law. Yes. And what you're saying at the moment is if I am living in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank, mm. sure, I might get permission to go and work in Israel and travel mm. across through the border, but um, I'm a I'm a guest worker. Yep, absolutely. Of yeah, those that, that... people, of the Palestinian people, there are Palestinian people and other Arabs. Correct me where I go wrong, John. Mm -hmm. who didn't leave Israel when it was formed, mm -hmm. and they're living in Israel now, they are Israeli citizens, as I understand it. Yes, they are. Palestinian citizens of Israel, yep. And do they, do they, they have basically the full rights of citizenship? No, they don't. That's where okay. people, um, Israel says they, um, well, Israel, People who, um, what I would call the pro-Israel lobby, says yes, they do. They have they have the right to do this, this, and this, and they can vote and what have you. And that's true. About twenty percent of the citizens of Israel are Palestinian, but um, Israel has a whole myriad of laws, about sixty-five different laws, which discriminate against them. Um, for example, um, Palestinians are not required to. In fact, uh, not not encouraged in any case to um, to join the Israeli military, um, uh, and then if you don't do your military service, there's a whole lot of things that you miss out on um, in terms of your, um, you know, uh, I don't know, um, sort of, um, I guess, rights of citizenship, which would which would which would apply in most countries, don't apply to. Um, to Palestinians uh, living in Israel, the, the, the um, Israel Israeli government um, three years ago passed a thing called the nation state law, which said that the only group that can have self determination in Israel are Jews. No one else can have self determination in Israel. So, in other words, they were turning their back on the twenty percent of their own population who are Palestinian. And uh, Netanyahu, the, the current prime minister, he said that Israel is not a state for all its people. Sorry, not a state for all its citizens. In other words, there are two classes of citizen. There are Jewish citizens and there are Palestinian citizens. And there are a whole range of laws which discriminate against um, uh, 
or in, in favour of Jews and against Palestinians. So, so it's not um, a situation. It's not a democratic country at all because you've they got this two-tier system. They, they get to vote, but you're saying because they're excluded from some things, there are consequences to that. Like, yeah, um, lots of consequences. Yeah. Funny enough, um, I, I can sort of understand you look at uh, the Jewish Israelis looking sideways at Palestinians and their army because they potentially have a divided loyalty. Well, uh, well, that's, um, you, yes, you, you could certainly say that. Um, but uh, it, it's not just that. I shouldn't perhaps have emphasized that so much. Okay. It, it's, a whole, it's a whole structure which, um, which discriminates against them. Like, for example, in, in education, um, the amount of money that goes towards educating Jewish children is is um, much greater than that which the state gives for educating Palestinian children. Um, the healthcare healthcare systems, for example, the same. So they have, um, you know, uh, like local bodies. Um, there'll be Jewish local bodies and Palestinian local bodies, and the Jewish local bodies get far better um, resources, um, far better um, access to state sort of funding than Palestinians do. It's a very deeply racist state if you hop across to gaza mm -hmm. and its current government mm -hmm. are you a supporter of that am i a supporter of, the, of the the like yeah hamas well, they haven't had. Um, it's, I mean, it's not my job to to decide who represents Palestinians. But there was a democratic election held there in two thousand and six, and and Hamas won. And I can understand Hamas winning because Palestinians had tried everything, and the Palestinian Authority, which was nominally to represent Palestinians, um, has simply become what they call a security contractor for Israel. So through the Oslo Accords, the Palestinian Authority had the role of suppressing Palestinian dissent. And so it's seen as a as a deeply corrupt, um, dreadful leadership. And Palestinians want elections. They've been they've been desperate to have elections for years, but they haven't had elections for 17, 18 years now. And um, they want elections, right? So there should be elections. But um, Israel doesn't want the elections. The US doesn't want elections. Um, and the Palestinian Authority doesn't want elections because they know they get booted out. But the um, so there's this kind of um, kind of uh, cabal working against the democratic voices of the Palestinian people. So you distinguish, if you like, the Gaza Strip governing body mm -hmm. from the Palestinian people. Yep, you're saying that. The Palestinian people don't get to vote now. They got to vote. They voted Hamas in. They were democratically elected. Mm -hmm. Elections have been suspended. And you're saying implicated in that suspension of their elections is the Israelis and the Americans, as well, of course, as Hamas. Because if you're in power, you don't want elections. You quite like it. Well, no, Hamas has been um, have, have been... Um have been quite happy about having elections. It's the Palestinian Authority, which is based in the West Bank, yes. which doesn't want elections. Okay. So Hamas wants elections. Yeah, absolutely. And 
when we see pictures of um, dreadful things happening in the Gaza Strip, and I'm mm -hmm. thinking here of uh, informers being summarily executed mm -hmm. or suspected informers, um, an absence of the rule of law, um, homosexuals being discriminated against, if not killed, is that, how do you, I mean, my, my point about this is you're saying, oh, well, there's this, Israel's not perfect, but I hop across to the Gaza Strip, and when I see that, and you and I are both relying on reports, which we are skeptical of, mm -hmm. when I see reports of the Gaza Strip, it sounds a dreadful place in terms of the oh, I think, um, you know, inevitably you're, um, I think in the circumstances, the Gaza Strip probably works um, works much better than you might expect it to. But really, it's I think those are a distraction from the overall problem. I mean, of course, within Palestinian society, just as just as within any society in the world, of course, there are differences of of, of opinion about things like homosexual reform or gay rights or what what have you. Um, there's no question of that. But I think um, the um, that shouldn't um, those debates are not central to what what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, a situation. I mean, just going back to what what we were saying before about the Palestinians um, um, uh, sort of having rights within Israel. And yes, twenty percent of Israeli citizens are Palestinian citizens of Israel, and those people were people who um, who were not ethnically cleansed in nineteen forty eight. But the people living in Gaza are people that came from central and southern Israel in about 400 different villages in that area. And in 1948, between 1947 and 1949, they were ethnically cleansed from those from those areas in what is today Israel and pushed. They were pushed um, uh, westwards into Gaza and they were pushed eastwards into what's now um, the West Bank of um on the you know west bank of, of the Jordan River. So so this vast area was ethnically cleansed and that was done by Jewish militias, right? These were these were heavily armed Jewish militias. This was before the formation of the Israeli Defense Force. In fact, before Israel was formed, uh, these militias went round and they they terrorized the Palestinian population and they simply drove them off their land. There were lots of massacres. It's, it's all very well detailed this this history. Um, about 400. And, the, and, and sorry, the 20% that remained, John, Yeah, were they different or did they resist? How come? No, they were just in a different, a different part of Israel. They were up, okay. up, to the, up, up in the more northern part of Israel. And to be frank, um, and by the time uh, the world, world attention, when world attention came on to Israel to, 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 um, and people became aware of what was going on, the Western world, suddenly pressure came on Israel. You can't do this. You can't drive people off their land. And, of course, this is why um, in the middle of 1948, after Israel got halfway through this massive ethnic cleansing operation, it was 700, over 700,000 people were driven off their land um, and just, just herded. I mean, Going on these long, what, what they what they call death marches from their village with all they could carry, anything they could carry, and forced to walk um, across 
uh, into Gaza and across into the, on the other side into the west bank of the of the Jordan. So those um, you know those Palestinians. I mean, eighty percent of the Palestinians in Gaza now. Eighty percent of them are uh, just uh, are the um, not so many. Um, not not many are alive now from the who were originally ethnically cleansed, but all their descendants. So eighty percent of the people in Gaza are refugees from um, from the land that they had in Israel, and so families in Gaza, you can walk to the security fence. Don't get too close to it; you'll you'll be shot. You can walk to the security fence, and you can look across, and they can see. The, very often they can see the land that their village was on. They can see the local geographic features. But Israel says you will never be able to return to your land. And so when when the world realized there was this ethnic cleansing going on, the world said, um, and when I say the world, I mean the United Nations said in 1949, Israel, you must allow these people to return to their land and um, their land and their homes. And um, New Zealand supported that back in 1949. But since 1949 up to the present day, um, Israel is refusing to allow those people to return to their land. And that is the heart of the problem. So these people in Gaza, this little um, 2.3 million people in this little pressure cooker, um, they're held there with um, by Israel on the one hand and, and Egypt on the other. And Egypt, as people may not know, um, Israel is by far the greatest recipient of U.S. aid. And I think Israel, the last time I looked at the figures, Israel was the second largest. Egypt. Uh, Egypt. Sorry, Egypt, Egypt, beg your pardon, Egypt. So so um, Egypt's under pressure from the U.S. and Israel to maintain this, this blockade at their end while Israel maintains it at, on its side. So these so people, was, all these refugees just jammed in there. So it was 700,000 pushed yep. into the Gaza Strip, and others were pushed into the West Bank. Yeah, well, 700,000 split between the between okay. Gaza and, 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 and the West Bank, yep. So... Because Israel wanted to create um, a, a, a majority Jewish state, right? Yes. And at the time, it didn't have a majority in the whole area of historic Palestine by any means, but they wanted a majority um, Jewish state. So they And there's now 2.3 million in the Gaza Strip. Yep, 2.3 million, yep. So has that been natural population growth or have there been more refugees from elsewhere? Um, no, uh, population growth, yeah. There's not not many not many refugees coming and going. Very difficult for Palestinians to get in and out of Gaza um, at all. Um, so, yeah, ma- it's mainly population growth. Yeah. Before uh, 1947, uh, it was a British colony, correct? Well, it was a British, the British mandate, um, mandate after the, after the First World War. I mean, New Zealand soldiers were there working with the British um, in the Middle East, helping to um, drive the Turks out because at that time um, it was the Ottoman Empire. It was Ottoman Empire, and um, which they used to call the sick old man of Europe, and it was uh, it was unable to defend its borders, and so. And uh, General Allenby, they with New Zealand troops, they came in and they pushed um, the uh, pushed the Turks out and took over um, the area. And then the League of Nations gave Britain the the mandate to look after the area. And uh, across the whole of um, all of those uh, Arab countries, in the following years, 
after the First World War, they all gained independence, except Palestine. Palestine was never granted independence. So you had, you know, you had Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and what have you, all those countries um, gained independence. But Palestine, no, because Britain said, we want to have, we want to promote um, a Western state in the area. They didn't use these words, but they wanted a Western state in the area because Rodney, you remember uh, at that time, the whole world was shifting from coal to oil and, um, and that, Arab countries had the oil and the Western countries did not have a foothold in the Middle East and they wanted one. And so they promoted the idea of this, um, of a, of a, of a Jewish state, which would be a client state in the Middle East, which would help to protect uh, Western interests in, in the oil of the area. The Palestinians, that area, Israel, Gaza Strip, West Bank, mm-hmm has always been occupied by some crowd or another. It has, yeah. yeah. Um, and the Ottomans for a long time, Alexander the Great, the Romans, you name it, they all went through there and occupied it. Yep, absolutely. The Palestinians, is it, they, funnily enough, have never really been in charge of their own destiny or had their own country. They've sort of been the gypsies or the Jews uh, there, always under uh, some sort of colonial authority. So while it was called uh, Palestine, it was under the British. Well, it was under the British then. It's always been called Palestine. You can go back um, 4,000 years and you can find the word, um, the word, um, uh, you know, I can't say it, say it in Arabic, but um, Arabic word for, for 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 Palestine. It was that. It was an easy. Well, I guess it was. Um, it was a. It was a geographic area between the river and the sea, and it was always called Palestine or versions of that going back thousands of years. Mm. But but you're uh, right. The mixture. They're a real mixture of people, and Palestine. Quite proud of that. They've got they've got all these different heritages because, of course, the Crusaders went in there. Yes, um, everyone's been there. there. Thousand, well, everyone was there. It's the cradle of civilization, and mm. sadly, civilization is a messy place. <laughs> and well, there's been a lot of violence. Well, there has been, but but you know, um, I think um, with the advent of um, you know, what we like to call the international rules-based order. It's come about in the last century, you know, the development of international law, the the, the development of the of the League of Nations, then the United Nations. We start to develop a we start to develop this sort of rules-based system. Um and and what Israel's done goes you know diametrically opposed to the development of this rules-based system. And so, so we have this, and you know, it's like a little anathema in the in the Middle yeah. East there. So you're not keen, correct me again if I'm wrong, you're not keen on a two-state solution. What you're saying is there should be a state from the river to the sea, mm-hmm. but it includes the Jewish people mm. and the Palestinian people side by side. Yep, absolutely. Firstly, I'd say um you know, Jewish people have lived in the area for, you know, for thousands of years. I mean, Jesus Christ was Jewish, right, from a Jewish community living in Palestine. And um, and up until, right, up until sort of the 1920s, those um, Jewish communities were very small, maybe 5% of the population overall. In some areas, maybe 10%. But so those Jewish people living there, they can claim to be indigenous people. In fact, they would... Um, 
in 1940s, they referred to themselves as Palestinians. In other words, Palestinian was a sort of like a like a generic term for all of the people living in the in that area. Um, and and to be and the Jewish people living in, you know, who who lived there for for thousands of years did not want a Jewish state. They were quite happy to be. They'd lived alongside Arabs and Christians for forever, and they were quite happy to to continue to do that. So. Um, that they weren't the driving. The driving force came from from European Jews who were quite rightly desperately upset at the appalling anti-Semitism that went on in Europe. And um, the great irony of all of this, um, Rodney, is that uh, Palestinians today are being asked to pay the price for European anti-Semitism because it was it was the European powers. I mean, in Russia, for example, under the Tsars, it was appalling. Uh, the pogroms against Jews there, so they they were driven out, and and again another irony is that when when Jews were persecuted in Europe, so for example in 1492 when the um, when the uh, uh, the the Christians took over Spain and drove out the drove out the Moors, um, then the um, the the Christians began persecuting Jews and Jews fled. And they fled to Morocco, places like Morocco. They fled mm. to the Arab world. Quite often the Arab world is the place where they've found sanctuary, where they've been able to practice their culture and religion without interference. Um, but Israel now says, oh, no, the whole world's against us. The Arabs hate us. They hate our religion. That's absolutely untrue, completely untrue. Um, there was uh, a backlash against Jews in the, in the Arab world when they began when Israel said we're acting on behalf of Jews internationally and we're taking over this area for Jews and booting the Palestinians off their land. And yeah, the, the um, Arab armies got really angry and, and they did uh, declare war on, on Israel just, just as, as it was forming for that reason. So a solution could be for you. Yep. Again, I don't want to put words into your mouth. I'm just trying to clarify my own thinking would be, First of all, for Israel to give full equal citizenship, including entering the military and the privileges that attach having done military service, mm. to all Palestinians living within Israel, number one. So you end uh, the discrimination. Second, to tear down the wall between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and integrate the people living there within mm -hmm. the state and to hold equal citizenship and democratic elections in a parliament. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And I think I think that's probably um that's increasingly that is the majority view among Palestinians. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that among Jewish Israelis there's quite a there's quite strong support for that. I saw a poll um a few years back I mean, it may have changed in the meantime, um, saying 25% of Jewish Israelis would be very happy to live in a secular state where everybody has equal rights. Would the Jews still be the majority? No, they, they'd probably be... Um, no, no, they wouldn't be. If, if, the, if the refugees return um, to their land, um, the Jews would not be a majority, but they'd be a substantial... They'd still be probably 40% um, of, the, of the population. You can see their concern given recent history. Well, you know, I don't think um, – I think what you're talking about is a European history. Um, but a history in the Arab world 
um, doesn't look like that that at all. Um, it, you know, as I say before, and right across the Arab world, um, you know, Jews were given sanctuary uh, when they were they were persecuted in 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 Europe, and um, yeah, that's the, that's the history of it. Okay, take us to um, the. Sorry. Yeah, so, so if I uh, can I just um, say this that I think people often say to me, you know, they they roll their eyes and say, "How the hell these people have been fighting each other for for for, for decades?" vicious violence how could they possibly live together and i would say that um you've got his examples around the world of that very thing happening i mean south africa is a is an example of that where you haven't you know where people said um the white minority there eugene terra blanc and all them they will they will they will never accept um majority black rule uh, but they have and yeah i mean there's a whole other issue about what South Africa's done or not done, and the fact that it's in such a such a mess in so many ways now, which um, I'm I'm extremely critical of of what's happened in, in in South Africa. But those enmities can be overcome. You know, South Africa had that Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which which Bishop Tutu um, presided over. So I'm not saying everything would be would be um, you know honey and roses. It would be it would take it would take quite a while for that. Um, but 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 a much shorter time than we might expect for those. I mean, already, Rodney, twenty percent of Israeli citizens are, are Palestinian, right? And there is, and they, you know, yeah, of course, there are tensions. There are big tensions there because of the whole, the whole situation in in the Middle East. Um, but those things can be can be resolved and and overcome. The Arab states that as i see it aren't i mean they're pretty religiously hardcore with a couple of notable exceptions hardcore and intolerant of what we might call western liberal views now i'm not going to say they should change right I don't mind how they live as long as they, you know, don't trouble me. But they're not places that I would want to raise my sons and daughters. I don't like, I wouldn't like to live, for example, under a caliphate. Yeah, of course. I like, I like a Western democracy uh, that is, that is a secular state, mm -hmm. but the Arab world tends to favor, as I see it, uh, religious, bigoted, if I may use uh, some florid language, intolerant state. Yeah, I'd, 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 um, I'd challenge, um, uh, I'd challenge what what you're saying there in yes. general. First of all, I think the um, the Arab the people living in Arab countries that they are not democracies; they are autocracies, right? And they're often religious autocracies. So people don't have those democratic free freedoms, and they want them. You know, look what happened in the Arab Spring, when right across the Arab world, people revolted against their governments. They wanted democracy. They wanted the chance to, to, to have, um, you know, um, liberation in that sense. They wanted, they wanted freedom. They want freedom of speech. They want freedom to live their own lives. They want, yeah, they want the, um, you know, women um, in general want greater freedoms, but their rulers are these. Um, yeah, 
autocrats that are backed up by and, and and very often as you say they use the religious system to to as one aspect of them keeping control of the arab populations so i think um we need to encourage democracy in all of those countries and um and and work with um you know and and work in solidarity with people who are striving for for democracy there unfortunately what it, what it, sorry yeah, I was just going to say. Unfortunately, um, the Western world has not been good at this, uh, Rodney. They have not been good at promoting democracy. Um, America will support any regime in the world, provided it is working in American interests. America doesn't want to promote democracy anywhere; it wants to promote its own interests. So, America has been backing up these most appalling regimes. Um, and I, I single out America because America has this enormous global reach. It's got what nine hundred military bases around the world. It is. It wants. You know. It sets itself up and says we uh, want full spectrum dominance. We want to dominate the globe, politically, culturally, economically. Um, we 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 want that domination. And they they and anyone who goes along with that is a friend and therefore is a is an ally, no matter what, no matter what kind of dictator they are. And um, I think we need to. You know, we need to support democracy in the Middle East rather than support American interests in the Middle East. The um, origins of this, then, in your mind, date first with the British as mm. uh, dying colonial power. Yep. And now with America as a colonial power and empire reaching mm. around the world, promoting its interests. Mm. Would we not start? On the Gaza Strip with democracy. Oh, ab absolutely! Why not? You know, I mean, I mean, I, I think um, oh, it's very hard. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard question. Um, but yeah, why not? Um, I tell you why. Um, and I'm just—it's look, I'm shockingly ignorant, John, and I um, of the whole history. And of course, even someone who steeped in it only got a partial view of it because it's deep. Mm. But if if Chloe Swarbrook was calling out instead of from the river to the sea, if she was calling out democracy for Gaza Strip, I'd be a hundred percent in support. Yeah, but uh, I think you can't um, you can't isolate one little area like that though, and say. Um... You know that let, let, let's get democracy in the Gaza Strip first. That's that's not what the problem is, um, and it wouldn't matter what um, Chloe Swarbrick was was chanting. The the pro-Israel lobby would find some way of labelling what she says or what she does anti-Semitic because that is what they do, Rodney. And that well, is maybe, but I'm um, what no, I'm absolutely. saying. Absolutely, no, 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 no. That's them. I'm talking about me. Um, because oh yeah. Right, yeah. You know, well, why I'm wouldn't saying... you want? Why wouldn't you want to promote democracy across the whole area, Rodney? Why not across the whole area? Of course, and I'd I'd promote um, full citizenship for everyone. And I mean, I'm going yeah. to be making a study of this myself of Israel. Yeah. But my 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 point is, I'm just looking at it from. I look at this Gaza Strip and its governance, governance, and it's appalling. To me, oh yeah, I, I well, I think um, 
Let's cut to yeah. the chase. Yeah. No, Let's no, cut to I, this. No, 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 that, okay. that's fine. I, I accept that. I accept that. So, so and I mean, what you're here. saying is there's a reason for this because it's years of oppression and trauma. Yeah, yeah. and when people are under when people are under great stress and trauma, they go for they they they'll vote for for extreme for for extremes. If I gave you if I if I looked at this, um, perhaps I'm not sure. Of, uh, like, like for for example, if New Zealand was invaded and we were all living under under a military occupation from some other country, who would be the people in New Zealand who would lead a guerrilla army against those? Oh, invaders? the worst, the worst people in New been? Zealand. Well, there you are. Now, I, no, I, could, I agree with I could, you. I could probably name a few who would be. So, yeah. so they would be. Uh, they would. They would. They would become the people that that. That New Zealanders would unite behind the worst. The and worst so world would say, "What are you uniting behind those people?" They're X, Y, Z. But in fact, people under under pressure and under stress, they vote for the the best option they can see in front of them at the moment. Let's go to October seven, because <laughs> obviously, in one sense, this stretches back seventy five years, and another <laughs> sense, it stretches back thousands of years. But the reason that we're having this immediate discussion is October 7th and the response. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this didn't occur without a context and mm -hmm. a history. But what, to your mind, happened on October the 7th? What do you understand happened? Well, I mean, Palestinians um, under international law have a right to fight for their freedom. They are living under military occupation. Um, they how are they just pick that up? They're living under military occupation because mm. the Israeli army are based there. Because the Israeli army have created a siege of Gaza. The Israeli army were inside Gaza up until two thousand and six. Yes, and then um, and then Israel withdrew, withdrew its withdrew its forces, but then created this. Um, the siege, right? So, by the from the from the sea, from the land, from the air, nothing gets in and out of Gaza without Israel say so. And under international law, that means Israel. Uh, that means the Gaza Strip is occupied, right? So we talk about the occupied Gaza Strip, or the United Nations talks about the occupied Gaza Strip. Yeah, so, uh, so, it was, so Palestinians have a right to fight. They have a right to armed struggle because they are living under military occupation, just the same as the, the French resistance had the right to armed struggle against the German occupation of their country, or the Ukrainians have a right to armed struggle against the uh, Russian occupation of their country. Palestinians have a right to armed struggle against the occupiers of their country. So the siege, just to pick up the siege bit, as yep. I understand it, something like 30,000 Palestinians were coming through to work in Israel. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, there was a movement of goods and services and a lot of UN aid going into the Gaza Strip. But the Israelis were checking to see that weapons weren't going in. Is it more than that? I mean, do they deny food, water? Oh, they've, I mean, uh, they, they have, they've kept a, a, the most incredibly tight control over Gaza for a long time. They've... Hmm. In terms of the food they allow, and they they've allowed they allow a specific calorie intake for the people of Gaza, right? So that um, and that this goes this goes back seventeen years. So the trucks going in, um, 
you know, the uh, they they try and keep a keep a tight control on, on what comes in. But of course, stuff does get in. Um, you know, missiles and arms get in through um, through tunnels, and um, and and then every now and again, Israel does what they call mowing the lawn. Right, mowing the lawn means you go in and you 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 invade Gaza and you you kill as many of the of the potential leaders of the Palestinian people as you can. And you you create. I mean, this is the fifth. I think the fifth war in Gaza in the last seventeen years, um, and and sort of try and decapitate the leadership, um, destroy um, civilian infrastructure across the board. I mean, Israel's come in. I think fifty percent of all of the housing is now completely destroyed, and and certainly in northern Gaza, and they're working their way through the whole Gaza Strip. And it, I mean. We're talking about electricity, water supplies, um, sewage systems, all the stuff that you and I would take for granted that a that a you know a decent society would have for its people. They deliberately destroy the whole lot. But and, if you uh, go go back to this point about this siege, yep. <clears throat> even if there wasn't a siege, you wouldn't find that acceptable. Because you're saying the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip have a right to go home. Yeah, absolutely. So the siege in itself, um, you're saying, absent the siege, um, absent having full rights of living right across from the river to the sea, Mm -hmm. these people have a right to fight. They absolutely have a right to fight under international law, like I said. Same as the Ukraine. So what you're saying is, come October the 7th, not only were they denied to go, quote, home, mm-hmm. they are in this place where they don't want to be and they're mm-hmm. confined and under a siege, as you see it, and therefore they have a right to attack, and that's what October the 7th was. That was what, that was what, yeah, that that at, at its heart, that is that is what it was. I think um, I, I just perhaps we should cut to the chase here, um, Rodney, and say that it was it's obvious that on October the seventh there were war crimes committed um, against mm-hmm. Israeli civilians, right? War crimes, and um, so attacking civilians, killing civilians, taking civilians hostage, those are all war crimes under the Fourth Geneva Convention, and they should be condemned. And not only condemned, we need an international criminal court investigation into those war crimes. In fact, all the war crimes that have been committed over the last um, eight weeks. We need we need that ICC investigation. I just saw in the newspaper today that that um, in terms of the um, in terms of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia last year, they've got the, the very first case has now been put to court. Well, apart from Putin, um, Vladimir Putin has an arrest warrant against him for um, displacement of Iranian children, right? And um, and uh, you know during the during the early stages of the invasion of 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 Ukraine, and now another four people, I think four Russian soldiers, have been indicted or have had arrest warrants issued for them for the torture of an American citizen in Ukraine. And I'm saying that's a good thing, right? That we have, there is an international process for deciding these things. And I think the ICC should be, um, well, that they've, they've been um, 
They, they've begun the process, but it's far too slow. They need to investigate the war crimes that are being that have been committed on both sides in the last six mm-hmm. weeks. And that includes the crime of apartheid, because that's a crime under international law, and the crime of genocide. And I know that word genocide, the Western media have been have been trying not to use the word genocide because they feel it it will ramp up um, ramp up tensions and maybe those tensions might um, um, sort of show themselves up in in destabilizing their own countries. But the fact is that it, genocide um, is what has been occurring when you when you carpet bomb densely populated areas, it's inevitable that you're going to have massive civilian casualties. And right now, or up until the present day, um, the equivalent of all of the children in 24 average New Zealand primary schools have been killed by Israeli bombing. And that is 6,600 children. That is absolutely outrageous. And the world has, and New Zealand, has not condemned that. And I think we should. And I think... So what I'm saying is, to put the broader picture in, there were war crimes committed on October the 7th and on every day since, and those war crimes must be investigated by the International Criminal Court and the any um, any Hamas fighters, any of the Palestinian resistance, um, they should be held to account for their war crimes against um, Israeli civilians, and the Israeli military commanders must be held to account for their orders when they told their, their Israeli pilots the, the emphasis is on damage, not on accuracy. They need to be held to account for. Well, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very pleased to hear this, John, and um, and I'm not trying to be in your pocket because um, I concur with it, right? Good. And it's good. good to see that you're not trying to explain away, justify, or deny what we saw. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough. I don't even believe videos. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so oh, I hard. do know what you mean. Well, there are so many videos which are, which are, I mean, videos that are pulled out from one conflict and then used to ramp up. Yes. Um, you but know, I'm, I mean, so, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear you saying, look, they can fight, um, but they have to fight uh, under the rules. And yep. what we saw sickened the world. And yep. um, I'm pleased to see that you're not resiling from the need for no. even though, even though, funnily enough, you might be able to understand it or whatever. It's mm. it's it, and and same for both. Of, the difficulty is this, though, isn't it? When you have a hot conflict like this, it's not a time to fly in judges. Oh, I'm not sure. I think it's probably the very time for the judges really? to be because how- Yes, because, no, because, because, Rodney, that, that's what we did in U- Ukraine. The ICC got involved immediately. Wow. They were, didn't they, they just got, get killed? No, within that, well, well, they didn't, they didn't actually go in um, as, you know, physically like that. What they did, they began collecting evidence. Mm. So from, from Ukrainian, re- Ukrainian refugees, from um, international news reports, from, um, you know, from, there's a whole pile of information which is available. They were able to immediately begin work. And the ICC. And that's not happening here. 
No, no, it's not. Well, well, it's it's begun to happen very, very slowly. It should should have happened on day one because as soon as you get the ICC involved like this, that then Israel knows, everyone knows, the eyes of the world are on here, and my God, I better be careful what I do. But there's been no restraint whatever placed on these Israeli military commanders, and we've had the most appalling atrocities happen. The bombing of schools, the bombing of... Um, of uh, of mosques of community centres, you know, with with you know, six thousand children. I, I, again, I'd be interested in this, and it's a genuine question. We had the so we had the bombing of the hospital, mm-hmm. and like everyone, I was shocked. Right mm. then, it came out, and I don't know what to believe. Right, because then it came out. Oh no, that was a a missile fired fired. Yeah, yeah, I know. And then what, it landed in the need. car park. And like, I look at this and then I hear, oh, thousands, this, thousands, this. And I agree with you. If you had someone there who we trusted, maybe the ICC, yep. who was sifting through this. Yep. Because right now, I don't believe either side. Oh, I think there's a there there are. I mean, I, I don't want to get involved in the in discussion of that of what happened there. I think I know because I've I've I've, I've read I've read quite quite a, yes. quite 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 a, quite a bit about it. But well, but I don't want to get into a discussion because I don't know. I no, don't know. That's I, I, our I point. don't know either. So, so um, you know, we we've all got our our, our suspicions right there. That's fine. But but it's not just that hospital. Um, every hospital in Gaza, and uh, they tell. I mean, I'm, you know. What the message Israel wants to give Palestinians is that no matter where you are, you are not going to be safe because the Israeli um, intelligence services have come up with a plan and their plan is to get rid of all of the Palestinians from Gaza, right? So that's not it's not an official plan of the Israeli government at the moment, but it is a it is a plan that was developed by the intelligence services, and 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 the plan is out there in the in the media now, and the plan is to push all of the Palestinians um, south to Rafah and then through the border into the Sinai Desert, and the Americans um, have approved that seventeen billion dollar package for Israel, and the. Um, you know, the speculation is that that's part of that seventeen billion dollars is to bribe um, Egypt to accept refugee camps for Palestinians at the um, in that in that part of the Sinai Desert just outside Gaza, and then Israel will come in and get rid of you know bulldoze the whole place, and we'll have um, Jewish settlements established there again. So I think um, that that is. That's something which is happening in the background now. It's playing out in the background. And what really worries me is that over Christmas, which is when these things happen, when the Western world in particular is focused on other things, that we will we could easily have Israel um, doing that. They're, they're pushing the, Pal- the Palestinian population right down to the southern part of Gaza, and then it won't be much extra to push them right through the Rafah crossing, right through into the, into the Sinai Desert. When you, it's called eth- ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing. Yeah. When you read the Hamas Charter, mm-hmm. which is a translation, obviously, mm-hmm. and I find quite 
difficult to read because it's a poor translation. Mm. But you don't get the sense that Hamas, at least, want to peacefully live with Jewish people in a democratic state. Oh, well, that's um, that's where you're wrong. Okay. Right, that's where you're wrong. So the, um, the first charter that came out from Hamas, and uh, this was in the late 1980s, it did. It, it talked about... Um, it talked about destruction of the state of Israel, never talked about um, killing the Jews or whatever, okay. but destruction of the state of Israel, which Israel interprets as they want to kill the Jews. But then, um, and that was a relatively unsophisticated document, but it, but in 2017 or 16, Hamas changed its charter, right? It became a more, uh, and it is today, a very sophisticated political organisation. And its charter says that it will um, it will accept the state of Israel based on its 1967 borders, and this is this is um, a two-state solution, right? So they said they will accept Israel based on 1967 borders, um, provided a Palestinian state can be formed on the on the you know the occupied what what are now called the occupied Palestinian territories. That's that is the occupied Gaza Strip, the occupied West Bank, and occupied East Jerusalem. So they they have essentially the same policy as the New Zealand government and most of the world supporting a two-state solution. Mm. And I think they supported, and, and so Israel always ignores that. They never want anyone to talk about that. They want to demonize Hamas as a terrorist organization. The US has, um, New Zealand hasn't. New Zealand has said that the armed wing of, of Hamas is designated a terrorist organization, but not Hamas itself. Because New Zealand, up until now anyway, has been happy to say there's got to be a political solution and Hamas has to be involved in, at least in those initial negotiations, towards a political solution. So Hamas is not the organisation which Israel claims it to be and Israel wants everyone to believe it to be. It is. It, it does not want to um, destroy Jews or kill Jews. It wants to. Um, it certainly wants to fight against the Israeli occupation of their country, um, but it is a it is a sophisticated um, political organisation at the moment. And I think we should be hearing far more from from Hamas spokespeople. Not because we we believe everything they say or everything they do, but we should just hear from them, as we hear from the Israeli military day after day after day. I turn on radio in New Zealand. Every story about the Middle East, it has got, it has an Israeli focus. It has an Israeli framework. We're looking at the whole thing through an Israeli framework, which we shouldn't be. We should be getting both sides again and again, so that so that we get respected as as uh, as citizens, able to make up our own minds about what's going on. When you just one thing, and it's a video thing, uh, and um. I don't want to make too much of it in one sense, but it horrified me and gave me pause for thought. And it was purportedly the video of those that poor girl mm -hmm. seemingly tortured, raped, dead in the back mm -hmm. of a ute, jeep. And the pop a population, including kids, cheering and spitting on the corpse. Mm. Now, 
it's a terrible thing how images and videos work on you mm -hmm. because that had a powerful effect on me. Yep. Well, it should have a powerful effect on anyone. That you didn't, know? if true, if accurate, that suggested a population reveling in death. Uh, no, that's where you, that's where. No, well, tell me. Very yeah. wrong. Well, I think the, um, I think we, you know, I could point you to, um, you know, to ten thousand videos online of uh, Palestinian people being open and supportive and warm and encouraging to 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 Jewish people. Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't know the video which you, which you're talking about, but I'll just reiterate what I said earlier on. There are there are war crimes were committed, and they must be investigated by the ICC. Not just war crimes committed by Hamas or, or allegedly committed by Hamas, because we don't know. There were eight groups that were involved in that coordinated attack on Israel. Hamas was the largest and and the most um, most disciplined and the most organised. Um, but whatever whatever happened, um, I, I yeah. So, so we we shouldn't um, we shouldn't decide on the basis of one image or no, one sure. picture, and that's yeah, and the another, difficulty another, we have. It's the difficulty we have, and I saw a video the other day of um, a group of um, of um, <coughs> excuse me Jewish um, school children singing a song calling for the destruction of of um, of Gaza. You know. Mm. Um, the annihilation of Gaza was what they talked. It was all genocidal talk. And you get um, when they have the annual, um, you know, young young Jews who who learn in these um, in these um, in these Jewish religious schools, um, they're they're out and they they call for the death of Palestinians. They chant death to Palestinians, may their villages burn. And they do that when they march through Jerusalem every year. It's a bit like the Orange Parade used to go through the Catholic areas in Northern Ireland. Well, um, young Jews um, going through the Arab or the, the Palestinian areas of East Jerusalem will be chanting those things. So you can point to all those things. And yet those are examples of extremists at work. And, um, and and where there are crimes committed, that they, they should be investigated and the people prosecuted. And we do have the capacity to do that these days. Mm. Tell but me. It shouldn't be used to demonize a whole people. Mm. Tell me. Um, I'm quite proud of this interview, John, um, because we have had a good discussion. Mm -hmm. Neither of us raised our voices. And mm -hmm. we've both had a fair suck of the salve. You wouldn't get this now in the New Zealand media. No, you wouldn't. No. Isn't that, looking at our own country, part of the cause of our predicament? Yes, I think it is. I absolutely agree with you. For example, um, we've, we've um, picked up with the media in the last... Um, I mean, what we want people in New Zealand to do is to get a good understanding of the whole situation. And and <clears throat> I disagree with um, people who say, oh, it's, it's too complex. You, you know, and, and I mean, the pro-Israel lobby says this all the time. People should not make comments about the Middle East until they know the history. I completely disagree. It's a very simple history at its basis. 
you know, it's it's what happened in Aotearoa, what happened in Australia, what happened in North America. European European immigration. Once the Europeans ra- ra- you know, get to a certain um, size and they've got enough political and military power, they push the indigenous people off their land and they take over. It's called colonization, and that's essentially what's at the heart of what's happened there. But and and to get the media here. Um, New Zealanders don't understand that, so we've been trying to get the media to report. When they talk about the West Bank, they should talk about the occupied West Bank so people have an understanding that this is this is not Israel. This is occupied um, Palestinian territory. Just, just, but they, but they, won't, they won't even get the geography right. So we have this – most people get totally confused by the whole thing. But, of course, the other thing that would happen is we could – you would have – in days gone by, you would have yourself on, you'd have someone from what, you know, pro-Israel yep. lobby. Yep. You'd have half an hour, an hour on TV. Yep. And you'd have a discussion and a debate. Yep. And you'd come away, maybe on one side or another, maybe not change mm. your mind, but it was able to hear yes. the discussion. Yep. And um we are now loath to do that for some reason. And what I notice is it ramps up the rhetoric mm. on both sides. So um, just just um, on that colon- colonization, because that confuses me. Yep. Because I understand, I'm assuming, because the Jewish people, as you say, have been there forever, the colonization is a consequence of the British and the American influence on the region. Is that what you're saying, is the colonisation of the area? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the Belfort Declaration, when this is even before uh, before Britain had the mandate, um, they gave the assurance to the um, to the, the Zionist organisations. They were, they were, you know, Zionists, the people who wanted a separate Jewish state, irrespective of what happened to the local population. Um, so Belfort... Um, in Britain, um, sent this letter to the to the Rothschilds, uh, Lord, Lord Rothschild, and said, you know, um, we we will support the formation of a Jewish state in the Middle East, but they said not at the expense of the people already living there. This is what Belfast said, and um, and they did that for two reasons. I think because, as I said before, they wanted a beachhead in the Middle East, the oil rich Middle East. The whole world was turning to oil. They wanted um, they wanted to, a base there in the Middle East, but also um, Lord Balfour and all, all the British establishment were deeply anti-Semitic. They did not want Jews coming to Britain. Mm. They, they would they, so they saw in a sense this might solve two problems: um, uh, get Keep get them Jews, away, get Jews out of out of out of Europe, and um, and as well as give themselves a base in the oil-rich Middle East. Are you surprised? by stories of anti-Semiticism now occurring in the West. I'm thinking particularly in um, universities. Yeah. Um, um. And <clears throat> I feel that's part of the failure of a debate and a dialogue, but I'm looking at that and I'm thinking if I was Jewish, I would actually be a little concerned and a little scared. And I yeah. would quite... I would quite like to know there was a place I could go 
Well, you know, on our on our protests around New Zealand in the last eight weeks, um, here in Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland, there have been Jewish speakers, mm-hmm. Jews who come out and say, look, what's happening is appalling. I do not support it. Netanyahu says he's doing all this in my name. It's not in my name. It is not in the interests of Jews. And they stand very strongly with the Palestinian people. So, and and they're welcome there. They get a really good reception. Um, and you you know you've got you've got you know Jews and, and Muslims and uh, Palestinians all interacting together. There's no issue. Um, the issue is with this the policies of the of the Israeli government. But if I take it a step further, you know we down here in Christchurch um, two weeks ago there were there were two at least two attacks on the on the. Jewish um, synagogue here. There's, uh, there's a small Jewish community in Christchurch, and um, they were. Some people um, broke the windows. You went smashed the windows, and I think there might have been some spray painting. What, what have you? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure the exact details of it. But we, we, um, we said, you know, the only way you get rid of racism in communities is with community solidarity. And we said, you know, we we stand with the Jewish community of Christchurch when they are under attack, just as we stand with the with the Islamic community when it's under attack or any minority group. When it comes under attack, the community has to draw together around it. So we reached out, we said to the uh, police liaison uh, person, I said, look, we're very happy to go there and, and um, express our solidarity with that, with that Jewish community and and to make that public, to um, we'd be very happy for the media to be there, and and we will be very happy to to condemn this attack on the Jewish community and to um, for, for whatever I mean there was no yeah for for whatever reason the, the attack took place it was completely unacceptable. Unfortunately, um, in my view, the, the Jewish community didn't feel strong enough to be able to to do that. They would they preferred. They said there was too many sensitivities around it, so that didn't take place. But I think um, overall, I think the community—that's the way you 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 attack anti-Semitism—is the same way you attack any kind of racism. And anti-Semitism is racism. You you you, you get rid of it with, through community solidarity by everybody speaking out, everybody drawing around the, the community which is under attack. Well, John, it's um, been a great interview. I appreciate you coming on. Um, I hope you'll come back. I um I feel more rounded. I'm gonna go away and have a think. I Good. um we disagree still. Um and but that's part of the process that uh, we can talk. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So thank you for that. Um you're on rally talk. Oh, I got it all wrong. You're on rally check radio, it's real talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, you can send us a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. We're talking to John Minto. He heads up as chairperson the Palestinian Solidarity Network, which is an umbrella group organising something upwards of 18 other groups, um, passionate about the Palestinian cause, uh, passionate about um, anti-racism, passionate about everyone living free and equally. And, of course, drawing on a different view and a different history, one that we can all share and we can all learn from. This is going to be a fought a fought situation that we work through here in New Zealand because it's not something I think we can readily ignore. 
do drop us a text. Do drop us an email with your thoughts. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Oh, here we go. Mailbag, you're on Radley Check Radio. Real talk with Rodney Hyde. Another mailbag. Oh, my goodness. Hi, Rodney. I enjoy listening to your talks. And do you think most people at RCR are Labour supporters or supporters of the new coalition? Just wondering. There must be some polarised work environments out there. I bet there are. Are you wondering about the people that work at RCR? You know, I I think um, there are Greens, there are Labour. There's New Zealand Firsts, there's National, and there's ACT. It's literally across the board and working here. And amongst our listeners, I think it's the same. It was one of the strangest things that the people that opposed all the mandates and the lockdowns crossed the political spectrum. Hi, Rodney. I have a complaint with the ombudsman that has passed one year. Oh, my goodness. Relating to a hospital refusing to provide an official information request. Is this normal? Sadly, probably yes. Do I have any other avenues, such as an official information request to the ombudsman? He's not subject to it. From Steve, go and see your local MP. Kick up a fuss. Um, The government departments know that the ombudsman is overwhelmed, and they use that. Good to hear you again, Sally. Oh, that's so sweet. Kathy Jameson interview. Oh, Rodney, a person of interest in the mRNA injection safety and the New Zealand data release may be Professor Alistair Woodward, Deputy Chair of the Mortality Review Committee. He is perfectly qualified and placed to know what is going on as Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Auckland. Unfortunately, he was awarded a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, as part of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So he's a global player. That rules him out. And by the way, he didn't get a Nobel Peace Prize. It was given to everyone. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and Michael Mann was claiming it, and the Nobel Prize Committee wrote to him and said he didn't have one. But he, of all people, is placed and uniquely qualified to know what the reality is. Be good to start turning public attention to some of these individuals. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Just not sure about this guy if he's on that IPCC. Hi, Rodney. Thank you for asking people to pray for Barry Young or send thoughts. I'd call it sending love and protecting light. It came up 1.11, just as you said, pray. Oh, how nice. Also, please, you and Kathy were referring to mobile sites, saying they would only be elderly. Not so. Here in the King Country, there were many, many and repeat visits to villages, marais, clubs, and I saw firsthand the double up of vax places, even on streets. Many Maori providers manned with lay people on big hourly bucks, some of whom I work with on New Zealand Census be the multiple vaccinators, a.k.a. terminators. These multiple Maori organisations were being contracted by the DHBs on top of medical centres and drive through manned by nurses working for the hospitals. I remember seeing jobs advertised on the DHB Waikato site early in the piece for, quote, administrators to go to various outlying towns and mobile, e.g. Thames, etc. Please remember, Barry, excess deaths over 120 per day. But what about all those who died the very day of their jab? the next day or two days after a week. I think he caught them. That might not have been in day of 120, but surely the death is one heck of a pointer at the jab, for sure. Please remember, as you say, data this and data that, every single one of those is someone dead. Indeed. 
I presume you've seen a report from the New Zealand Doctors SOS this week stating the deaths have increased in 2022 by 76% in ages zero to four years from 2021. Isn't that shocking? They also reported back in 2021 end of, or 2022 at the bottom of their email, the top four rest homes with the highest mortality rate after jab, bearing in mind there was no COVID when jabs began. I was horrified to see one of those top four was Beatty Home in Otorohonga. They only have one, as does Tikiwuri, have only one real home. What is interesting to me, the manager, clinical nurse, suddenly took early retirement before that info came out. At the time, I was dating this manager's brother. Oh, yeah, and she goes on about her not being necessarily the nicest person in the world. But rest homes in small places would only see the deaths as a conveyor belt of dollars. Likewise, we only have one funeral director serving Tikiwiti Otorohanga District's record dollars. It is amazing, isn't it? Love Reality Check Radio. Thank you, Rodney, and to all of you. I bet you're glad to have your current care and not a bee in Wellington. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Enjoyed your comment through the genocide. Sadly, I'll never finish. Keep up the good work. Regards, Richard and Diane. Rodney, I asked Drs. Matt Shelton and Asim Mahotra at their recent visit here whether any mRNA dose must, by making healthy cells, express foreign proteins induce autoimmune responses wherever it occurs in the body. They said exactly. That's why all mRNA jabs must be withdrawn immediately. It's basic immunology, nothing to do with poor handling. It is by design. Refer Mike Geden, David. Yes, indeed, I think that's true. Please forward this link to Kathy Jamison. Every batch across the Western world is contaminated with DNA and the lipid nanoprotein particles. Felt she knew about it and chopped it up in an attempt to get rid of it. They just gave it more opportunities to change our DNA, e.g. one strand of DNA equal one, two, or one and a lot of zeros chance to change one strand chopped up into 100 pieces DNA, 100 to more, a lot of zeros, no comments, I can't work it out. Every single mRNA dose may have the capability of changing our DNA forever. We need to do the test, this doctor suggests. Ashley Church interview. Hello, Rodney. Thank you for the interview with Ashley Church for Israel and Gaza. It was informative, comprehensive, and helpful, and one which I'd be comfortable forwarding onto my family and to others who would like to understand the situation and historical context. I really appreciate your quiet, open, conversational way of interviewing. Thank you. God bless you and your family. Louise. Thank you, Louise. Hi, Rodney. You may be interested to know that while there are claims denying or belittling the crimes against Israel from some, there's a growing archive of the raw proof of the 7th of October at the website listed in the attached screenshot. Anthony. Yes, indeed. Belinda Duggan interview. Mary Lenz would have been pre-colonial and not possible to prescribe it in science and maths. Such a refreshing teacher to listen to. Education and health were targeted in the 70s by communism to become confusing and to reduce the levels of education and health. We can still see the results today. Indeed. Yes, intentional deconstruction of the country and spying on your neighbour, teacher, boss, etc. Rodney, your guest mentioned the NCER put out a T-Rep survey, did you know Maureen Hopkins Chippy's mum is one of the bosses? Yes, indeed. Erica Stanford should employ Belinda as her second in charge. That's a great idea. Hi, Rodney. Ask your guest to ask the married students whether they want to be an airline pilot. English is the international language. Cheers, Martin. Rodney, what a great interview this morning. Please, would be amazing if you could do some work with the homeschoolers. 
many need help. Thank you, Robin. Hi, Rodney. Great talk with Belinda. I'm a retired English and languages teacher. Way back in the 1970s, I was considered by the inspectors to be an old fossil. <laughs> yeah, still going. Or a renegade for teaching grammar and structure in English. Isn't that disgusting? The Kremlin, <laughs> the Kremlin had banned such things even then. That's why younger teachers, let alone their students, generally can't write a correct sentence nowadays. It's pernicious. Great discussion. Thanks, Donna. Hi, Rodney's interview with Belinda touched on NCEA. I'm sure it would give amusement to Rodney to learn that in about 2006 while studying NCEA Level 1. I got a merit for ripping apart the essence of NCA. I chose from the multi-choice options for writing an essay, which was why New Zealanders do not work hard for success. That was the gist of it. My whole essay was about how NCA was a complete failure and set up young people to fail by at the time awarding individual levels of achieved merit and excellence, but not having an overall level of those categories marked on your overall year certificate or record for employees to see without digging into individual. This guy, he wrote an NCA exam about why NCA was a failure. Oh, dear. I did start it off with NCA, also known as not currently educating anyone, <laughs> which is why I was astounded to get a merit mark by an NCA exam marker. Oh, I had a couple of English teachers wanting photocopies <laughs> of that when it came back. That's wonderful. Oh, there you go. There's Mel. There's our. Um, Mail list. What a wonderful people we have. Do send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at radio. As you can tell, it brightens up our day. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a wonderful show we've had. Oh, my goodness. I found Rebecca Jones wonderful, but disturbing. I mean, I sort of, I thought of imagined that the government would be tweaking and providing those incentives, but I found it very dark that they're asking those questions before school, like a four-year-old's doing this secret mental health, mental, mental, mental health check. And the nurse, I guess, is asking these questions and recording it against your little kitty, and like you didn't give permission for that sort of stuff. Very chilling. And it was good to have John Minto on, and I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed talking to John. I um, had joked with Ashley Church that I know what side I was on by, you know, knowing where John Minto sits and me jumping on the other side. But nonetheless, it was good to test your understanding of the issues against a person who has a completely different view, and it tests you. And sometimes you come away thinking differently and changing your mind, or changing your argument, uh, or, or perhaps being fortified in your argument about why you think the way you do. And that's the virtue of free speech and hearing all sides of an argument. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text, please, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Look forward to being invited to your house, to your place of work, to your car. Thursday. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.